This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Elf Trap by Francis Stevens. It was read by Josh Roseman for Protecting Project Pulp, episode 83, which came out March 11th, 2014. It runs 52 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. In this, our well-advertised modern world, crammed with engines, death-dealing shells, life-dealing serums, and science, he who listens to old wives' tales is counted idle. He who believes them, a superstitious fool. Yet there are some legends which have a strange, deathless habit of recrudescence in many languages and lands. Of one such I have a story to tell. It was related to me by a well-known specialist in nervous diseases, not as an instance of the possible truth behind fable, but as a curious case in which, I quote his words, the delusions of a diseased brain were reflected by a second and otherwise sound mentality. No doubt his view was the right one. And yet, at the finish, I had the strangest flash of feeling, as if somewhere, sometime, I, like young Wharton, had stood and seen against blue sky Elva of the sky-hued scarf and the yellow honeysuckles. But my part is neither to feel nor surmise. I will tell the story as I heard it, save for substitution of fictitious names for real ones. My quotations from the Red Notebook are verbatim. Theron Tadamus, AAS, FES, DS, etc., occupied the chair of biology in a not unfamed university. He was the author of a treatise on cytology, since widely used as a textbook, and of several important brochures on the more obscure infusoria. As a boy, he had been, in appearance, a romantically charming person. The age of 37 found him still handsome in a cold, fine-drawn manner but almost inhumanly detached from any save scientific interests. Then, at the height of his career, he died. Having entered his classroom with intent to deliver the first lecture of the fall term, he walked to his desk, laid down a small red notebook, turned, opened his mouth, went ghastly white, and subsided. His assistant, young Wharton, was first to reach him and first to discover the shocking truth. Tadamus was unmarried, and his will bequeathed all he possessed to the university. The little red book was not at first regarded as important. Supposed to contain notes for his lecture, it was laid aside. On being at last read, however, by his assistant, in course of arranging his papers, the book was found to contain not notes, but a diary covering the summer just past. Barring the circumstances of one peculiar incident, Wharton already knew the main facts of that summer. Tadamus, at the insistence of his physician, the specialist aforesaid, had spent July and August in the Carolina Mountains, not far from the famous resort, Asheville. Dr. Locke was friend as well as medical advisor, and he lent his patient the use of a bungalow he owned there. It was situated in a beautiful but lonely spot, to which the nearest settlement was Carcassonne, in the valley below stood a tiny railroad station, but Carcassonne was not built up around this, nor was it a town at all in the ordinary sense. A certain landscape painter had once raised him a house on that mountainside, at a place chosen for its magnificent view. 
Later, he was wont to invite thither for summer sketching one or two of his more favored pupils. Later still, he increased this number. For their accommodation, other structures were raised near his mountain studio, and the Blue Ridge summer class became an established fact, with a name of its own and a rather large membership. Two roads led thither from the valley. One, that most in use by the artist colonists, was as good and broad as any Carolina mountain road could hope to be. The other, a winding, narrow, yellow track, passed the lonely bungalow of Dr. Locke, and at last split into two paths, one of which led on to further heights, the second to Carcassonne. The distance between colony and bungalow was considerable, and neither was visible to the other. Tatamus was not interested in art, and, as disclosed by the Red Book, he was not even aware of Carcassonne's existence until some days after his arrival at the bungalow. Solitude, long walks, deep breathing, and abstinence from work or sustained thought had been Dr. Locke's prescription, accepted with seeming meekness by Tatamus. Nevertheless, but a short time passed till Wharton received a telegram from the professor ordering him to pack and send by express certain apparatus, including a microscope and dissecting stand. The assistant obeyed. Another fortnight, and Dr. Locke in turn received an urgent wire. It was from Jake Higgins, the Negro caretaker whom he had lent to Tadamus along with the bungalow. Leaving his practice to another man's care, Dr. Locke fled for the Carolina Blue Ridge. He found his caretaker and his bungalow, but no Tadamus. By Jake's story, the professor had gone to walk one afternoon and had not returned. Having wired Locke, the caretaker had otherwise done his best. He notified the county sheriff, and search parties scoured the mountains. At his appeal, too, the entire Carcassonian colony, male and female, turned out with enthusiasm to hunt for Tadamus. Many of them carried easel and sketchbox along, and for such it is to be feared that their humane search ended with the discovery of any tempting tit in the scenic line. However, the colony's efforts were at least as successful as the sheriff's, or indeed those of anyone else. Shortly before Tadamus's vanishment, a band of gypsies had settled themselves in a group of old, empty, half-ruined shacks about a mile from Locke's bungalow. Suspicion fell upon them. A posse visited the encampment, searched it, and questioned every member of the migrant band. They were a particularly ill-favored set, dirty and villainous of feature. Nothing, however, could be found of either the missing professor or anything belonging to him. The posse left, after a quarrel that came near to actual fighting. A dog, a wretched starved yellow cur, had attacked one of the deputies and set its teeth in his boot. He promptly shot it. In their resentment, the dog owners drew knives. The posse were more efficiently armed, and, under threat of the latter's rifles and shotguns, the gypsies reconsidered. They were warned to pack up and leave, and following a few days' delay, they obeyed the mandate. On the very morning of their departure, which was also the eighth day after Tadamus's disappearance, Dr. Locke sat down gloomily to breakfast. The search, he thought, must be further extended. Let it cover the whole Blue Ridge if need be. Somewhere in those mountains was a friend and patient whom he did not propose to lose. At one side of the breakfast room was a door. It led into the cleared-out bedroom which Locke had, with indignation, discovered to have been converted into a laboratory by the patient he had sent here to rest. Suddenly, this door opened, 
Out walked Theron Tadamus. He seemed greatly amazed to find Locke there, and said that he had come in shortly after midnight and been in his laboratory ever since. Questioned as to his whereabouts before that, he replied surprisingly that throughout the week he had been visiting with friends in Carcassonne. Dr. Locke doubted his statement, and reasonably. Artists are not necessarily liars, and every artist and near-artist in the Carcassonne colony had not only denied knowledge of the professor, but spent a good part of the week helping hunt for him. Later, after insisting that Locke accompany him to Carcassonne and meet his friends there, Tadamus suddenly admitted that he had not previously been near the place. He declined, however, either to explain his untruthful first statement or give any other account of his mysterious absence. One week ago, Tadamus had left the bungalow, carrying nothing but a light cane and wearing a white flannel suit, canvas shoes, and a Panama. That was his idea of a tramping costume. He had returned, dressed in the same suit, hat, and shoes. Moreover, though white, they looked neat as when he started, save for a few grass stains and the road's inevitable yellow clay about his shoe soles. If he had spent the week vagrant-wise, he had been remarkably successful in keeping his clothes clean. Asheville, thought the doctor. He went by train, stopped at a hotel, and has returned without the faintest memory of his real doings. Lame, overtaxed nerves can play that sort of trick with a man's brain. But he kept the opinion to himself. Like a good doctor, he soon dropped the whole subject, particularly because he saw that Tadamus was deeply distressed and trying to conceal the fact. On plea of taking a long-delayed vacation of his own, Locke remained some time at the bungalow, guarded his friend from the curiosity of those who had combed the hills for him, and did all in his power to restore him to health and a clear brain. He was so far successful that Tadamus returned to his classes in the fall, with Locke's consent, to his classes, and death. Wharton had known all this. He knew that Tadamus's whereabouts during that mysterious week had never been learned, but the diary in the Red Book purported to cover the summer, including that week. To Wharton, the record seemed so supremely curious that he took a liberty with what was now the university's property. He carried the book to Dr. Locke. It was evening, and the latter was about to retire after a day's work that began before dawn. Personal, you say? Locke handled the book, frowning slightly. Personal. But I feel, when you finish reading that, I have a rather queer thing to tell you in addition. You can't understand till you've read it. I am almost sure that what is described here has a secret bearing on Professor Tadamus's death. His heart failed. Overwork. There was no mystery in that. Maybe not, doctor. And yet, won't you please read? Run through it aloud for me, said the doctor. I couldn't read one of my own prescriptions tonight, and you are more familiar with that microscopic writing of his. Wharton complied. Monday, July 3rd. Arrived yesterday. Not worse than expected, but bad enough. If Locke were here, he should be satisfied. I have absolutely no occupation. Walked and climbed for two hours, as prescribed. Spent the rest of day pacing up and down indoors. Enough walking, at least. I can't sit idle. I can't stop thinking. Locke is a fool. Thursday, July 6th. Telegraphed Wharton today. He will express me the swift binocular, some slides, cover glasses, and a very little other apparatus. 
Locke is a fool. I shall follow his advice, but within reason. There is a room here, lighted by five windows. Old Jake has cleared the bedroom furniture out. It has qualities as a laboratory. Not, of course, that I intend doing any real work. An hour or so a day of micrological observation will only make resting tolerable. Tuesday, July 11th. Jake hitched up his old gray mule and has brought my three cases from the station. I unpacked the old Stevenson Swift and set it up. The mere touch of it brought tears to my eyes. Locke's rest cure has done that to my nerves. After unpacking, though, I resolutely let the microscope and other things be. Walked ten miles uphill and down, tried to admire the landscape as Locke advised, but can't see much in it. Rocks, trees, lumpy hills, yellow roads, sky, clouds, buzzards. Beauty? What beauty is there in this vast, clumsy world that is the outer husk for nature's real and delicate triumphs? I saw a man painting today. He was swabbing at a canvas with huge, clumsy brushes. He had his easel set up by the road, and I stopped to see what any human being could find hereabout worth picturing. And what had this painter, this artist, this lover of beauty chosen for a subject? Why, about a mile from here there is a clump of ugly, dark trees. A stream runs between them and the road. It is yellow with clay, and too swift. The more interesting microorganisms could not exist in it. A ramshackle plank bridge crosses it, leading to the grove, and there, between the trees, stand and lean some dreary half-ruined huts. That scene was the one which my artist had chosen for his subject. For sheer curiosity, I got into conversation with the fellow. Unusual gibberish of chiaroscuro, flat tones, masses, etc. Not a definite thought in his head as to why he wished to paint those shacks. I learned one thing, though. He wasn't the isolated specimen of his kind I had thought him. Locke failed to tell me about Carcassonne. Think of it. Nearly a hundred of these insane pursuers of beauty are spending the summer within walking distance of the house I have promised to live in. And the one who was painting the grove actually invited me to call on him. I smiled noncommittally and came home. On the way, I passed the branch road that leads to the place. I had always avoided that road, but I didn't know why until today. Imagine it, nearly a hundred, some of them women, I suppose. No, I shall keep discreetly away from Carcassonne. Saturday, July 15th. Jake informs me that a band of gypsies have settled themselves in the grove which my Carcassonian acquaintance chose to paint. They are living in the ruined huts. Now I shall avoid that road, too. Talk of solitude. Why, the hills are fairly swarming with artists, gypsies, and Lord knows who else. One might as well try to rest in a beehive. Found some interesting variations of the ciliara living in a nearby pond. Wonderful. Have recorded over a dozen specimens in which the macronucleus is unquestionably double. Not lobed, not pulverate, as in oxytrica, but double. My summer has not, after all, been wasted. Felt singularly slack and tired this morning, and realized that I have hardly been out of the house in three days. Shall certainly take a long tramp tomorrow. Monday, July 17th. Absent-mindedness betrayed me today. I had a very unpleasant experience. Resolutely keeping my promise to Locke, I sallied forth this afternoon and walked briskly for some distance. I had, however, forgotten the gypsies and took my old route. Soon I met a woman, or rather a girl, she was arrayed in the tattered, brilliantly colored garments which women of these wandering tribes affect. 
There was a scarf about her head. I noticed, because its blue was exactly the same brilliant hue of the sky over the mountains behind her. There was a stripe of yellow in it, too, and thrust in her sash she carried a great bunch of yellow flowers. Wild honeysuckle, I think. Her face was not dark, like the swart faces of most gypsies. On the contrary, the skin of it had a smooth, firm whiteness. Her features were fine and delicate. Passing, we looked at one another, and I saw her eyes brighten in the strangest, most beautiful manner. I am sure that there was nothing bold or immodest in her glance. It was rather like the look of a person who recognizes an old acquaintance and is glad of it. Yet we never met before. Had we met, I could not have forgotten her. We passed without speaking, of course, and I walked on. Meeting the girl, I had hardly thought of her as a gypsy, or indeed tried to classify her in any way. The impression she left was new in my experience. It was only on reaching the grove that I came to myself, as it were, and remembered Jake's story of the gypsies who were camping there. Then I very quickly emerged from the vague, absurd happiness which sight of the girl had brought. While talking with my Carcassonian, I had observed that grove rather carefully. I had thought it perfect, that nothing added could increase the somber ugliness of its trees, nor the desolation of its gray, ruined, tumble-down old huts. Today, I learned better. To be perfect, ugliness must include sordid humanity. The shacks, dreary in themselves, were hideous now. In their doorways lounged fat, unclean women, nursing their filthy offspring. Older children, clothed in rags, caked with dirt, sprawled and fought among themselves. Their voices were the snarls of animals. I realized that the girl with the sky-like scarf had come from here, out of this filth unspeakable. A yellow cur, the mere starved skeleton of a dog, came tearing down to the bridge. A rusty jangling bell was tied about its neck with a string. The beast stopped on the far side and crouched there, yapping. Its anger seemed to surpass mere canine savagery. The lean jaws fairly writhed in maniacal but loathsomely feeble ferocity. A few men, whiskered, dirty-faced, were gathered about a sort of forge erected in the grove. They were making something, beating it with hammers in the midst of showers of sparks. As the dog yapped, one of the men turned and saw me. He spoke to his mates, and to my dismay they stopped work and transferred their attention to me. I was afraid that they would cross the bridge, and the idea of having to talk to them was for some reason inexpressibly revolting. They stayed where they were, but one of them suddenly laughed out loudly and held up to my view the thing upon which they had been hammering. It was a great, clumsy, rough iron trap. Even at that distance I could see the huge, jagged teeth fit to maim a bear. Or a man. It was the ugliest instrument I have ever seen. I turned away and began walking toward home, and when I looked back they were at work again. The sun shone brightly, but about the grove there seemed to be a queer darkness. It was like a place alone and aloof from the world. The trees even were different from the other mountain trees. Their heavy branches did not stir at all in the wind. They had a strange, dark, flat look against the sky, as though they had been cut from dark paper, or, rather, like the flat trees woven in a tapestry. That was it. The whole scene was like a flat, dark, unreal picture in tapestry. I came straight home. My nerves are undoubtedly in bad shape, and I think I shall write Locke and ask him to prescribe medicine that will straighten me up. 
So far, his rest cure has not been notably successful. Wednesday, July 19th. I have met her again. Last night, I could not sleep at all. Round midnight, I ceased trying, rose, dressed, and spent the rest of the night with the good old Stevenson Swift. My light for night work, a common oil lamp, is not very brilliant. This morning, I suffered considerable pain behind the eyes, and, determined to give Locke's walking and open-air treatment another trial, though discouraged by previous results. This time, I remember to turn my back on the road which leads to that hideous grove. The sunlight seemed to increase the pain I was already suffering. The air was hot, full of dust, and I had to walk slowly. At the slightest increase of pace, my heart would set up a kind of fluttering, very unpleasant, and giving me a sense of suffocation. Then I came to the girl. She was seated on a rock, her lap heaped with wild honeysuckle, and she was weaving the flower stems together. Seeing me, she smiled. I have your garland finished, she said, and mine soon will be. One would have thought the rock a trysting place at which we had for a long time been accustomed to meet. In her hand she was extending to me a wreath made of the honeysuckle flowers. I can't imagine what made me act as I did. Weariness and the pain behind my eyes may have robbed me of my usual good sense. Anyway, rather to my own surprise, I took her absurd wreath and sat down where she made room for me on the boulder. After that, we talked. At this moment, only a few hours later, I couldn't say whether or not the girl's English was correct, nor exactly what she said, but I can remember the very sound of her voice. I recall, too, that she told me her name, Elva, and that when I asked for the rest of it, she informed me that one good name was enough for one good person. That struck me as a charmingly humorous sally. I laughed like a boy, or a fool, God knows which. Soon she had finished her second garland, and laughingly insisted that we each crown the other with flowers. Imagine it. Had one of my students come by then, I am sure he would have been greatly startled. Professor Theron Tadamus seated on a rock with a gypsy girl, crowned with wild honeysuckle, and adjusting a similar wreath to the girl's blue-scarfed head. Luckily, neither the student nor anyone else passed, and in a few minutes she said something that brought me to my senses. Due to that inexplicable dimness of memory, I quote the sense, not her words. My father is a ruler among our people. You must visit us. For my sake, the people and my father will make you welcome. She spoke with the gracious air of a princess, but I rose hastily from beside her. A vision of the grove had returned, dark, oppressive, like an old dark tapestry woven with the ugly forms and foliage. I remembered the horrible, filthy tribe from which this girl had sprung. Without a word of farewell, I left her there on the rock. I did not look back, nor did she call after me. Not until reaching home, when I met old Jake at the door and saw him stare, did I remember the honeysuckle wreath. I was still wearing it and carrying my hat. Snatching at the flowers, I flung them in the ditch and retreated with what dignity I might into the bungalow's seclusion. It is night now, and a little while since I went out again. The wreath is here in the room with me. The flowers were unsoiled by the ditch and seem fresh as when she gave them to me. They are more fragrant than I had thought even wild honeysuckle could be. Elva, Elva of the sky-blue scarf and the yellow honeysuckle. My eyes are heavy, but the pain behind them is gone. I think I shall sleep tonight. 
Friday, July 21st. Is there any man so gullible as he who prides himself on his accuracy of observation? I ask this in humility, for I am that man. Yesterday, I rose, feeling fresher than for weeks past. After all, Locke's treatment seemed worthy of respect. With that in mind, I put in only a few hours staining some of my binucleate cilia and finishing the slides. All the last part of the afternoon, I faithfully tramped the roads. There is undoubtedly a sort of broad, coarse charm in mere landscape with its reaches of green, its distant purples, and the sky like a blue scarf flung over it all. Had the pain of my eyes not returned, I could almost have enjoyed those vistas. Having walked farther than usual, it was deep dusk when I reached home. As if from ambush, a little figure dashed out from behind some rhododendrons. It seemed to be a child, a boy, though I couldn't see him clearly, nor how he was dressed. He thrust something into my hand. To my astonishment, the thing was a spray of wild honeysuckle. Elva! 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 The strange youngster was fairly dancing up and down before me, repeating the girl's name and nothing else. Recovering myself, I surmised that Elva must have sent this boy, and sure enough, at my insistence, he managed to stop prancing long enough to deliver her message. Elva's grandmother, he said, was very ill. She had been ailing for days, but tonight the sickness was worse, much worse. Elva feared that her grandmother would die and, of course, the boy said, no doctor will come for our sending. She had remembered me as the only friend she knew among the outside people. Wouldn't I come and look at her poor sick grandmother? And if I had any of the outside people's medicine in my house, would I please bring that with me? Well, yes, I did hesitate. Aside from practical and obvious suspicions, I was possessed with a senseless horror for not only the gypsy tribe, but the grove itself. But there was the spray of honeysuckle. In her need, she had sent that for a token and sent it to me, Elva of the sky-like scarf and laughing mouth. Wait here, I said to the boy rather brusquely and entered the house. I had remembered a pocket case of simple remedies, none of which I had ever used, but there was a direction pamphlet with them. If I must play amateur physician, that might help. I looked for Jake, meaning to inform him of my proposed expedition. Though he had left a chicken broiling on the kitchen range, he was not about. He might have gone to the spring for water. Passing out again, I called the boy, but received no answer. It was very dark. Toward sunset, the sky had clouded over, so that now I had not even the benefit of starlight. I was angry with the boy for not waiting, but the road was familiar enough, even in the dark. At least, I thought it was, till colliding with a clump of holly, I realized that I must have strayed off and across a bare stretch of yellow clay which defaces the mountainside above Locke's bungalow. I looked back for the guiding lights of its windows, but the trees hid them. However, the road couldn't be far off. After some stumbling about, I was sure that my feet were in the right track again. Somewhat later, I perceived a faint ruddy point of light to the left and ahead of me. As I walked toward it, the rapid rush and gurgle of water soon apprised me that I had reached the stream with the plank bridge across it. There I stood for several minutes, staring toward the ruddy light. That was all I could see. It seemed somehow to cast no illumination about it. There came a scamper of paws, the tinkle of a bell, and then a wild yapping broke out on the stream's far side. That vile, yellow cur, I thought, 
Elva, having imposed on my kindness to the extent of sending for me, might at least have arranged a better welcome than this. When I pictured her, crouched in her bright, summer-colored garments, tending the dreadful old hag that her grandmother must be, the rest of the tribe were probably indifferent. She could not desert her sick, and there stood I, hesitant as any other coward. For the dog's sake, I took a firm grip on my cane. Feeling about with it, I found the bridge and crossed over. Instantly, something flung itself against my legs and was gone before I could hit out. I heard the dog leaping and barking all around me. It suddenly struck me that the beast's voice was not like that of the yellow cur. There was nothing savage in it. This was the cheerful, well-excited bark of a well-bred dog that welcomes its master, or its master's friend, and the bell that tinkled to every leap had a sweet, silvery note, different from the cracked jangle of the cur's bell. I had hated and loathed that yellow brute, and to think that I need not combat the creature was a relief. The huts, as I recalled them, weren't fifty yards beyond the stream. There was no sign of a campfire, just that one ruddy point of light. I advanced. Wharton paused suddenly in his reading. Here, he interpolated, begins that part of the diary which passed from commonplace to amazing, and the queer part is that in writing it, Professor Tadamus seems to have been unaware that he was describing anything but an unusually pleasant experience. Dr. Locke's heavy brows knit in a frown. Pleasant, he snapped. The date of that entry? July 21. The day he disappeared. I see. Pleasant. And that gypsy girl. Huh. What an adventure for such a man. No wonder he tried to lie out of it. I don't think I care to hear the rest, Wharton. Whatever it is, my friend is dead. Let him rest. Oh, but wait, cried the young man with startled earnestness. Good Lord, doctor, do you believe I would bring this book even to you if it contained that kind of story about Professor Tadamus? No, its amazing quality is along different lines than you can possibly suspect. Get on with it, then, grumbled Locke, and Wharton continued. Suddenly, as though at a signal, not one, but a myriad of lights blazed into existence. It was like walking out of a dark closet into broad day. The first dazzlement passing, I perceived that instead of the somber grove and ruined huts, I was facing a group of very beautiful houses. It is curious how a previous and false assumption will rule a man. Having believed myself at the gypsy encampment several minutes passed before I could overcome my bewilderment and realize that after losing my road, I had not actually regained it, that I had somehow wandered into the other branch road and reached not the grove, but Carcassonne. I had no idea either that this artist's colony could be such a really beautiful place. It is cut by no streets. The houses are set here and there over the surface of such green lawns as I have never seen in these mountains of rock and yellow clay. Dr. Locke started slightly in his chair. Carcassonne, as he had himself seen it, flashed before his memory. He did not interrupt, but from that moment his attention was alertly set, like a man who listens for the key word of a riddle. Everywhere there were lights, hung in the flowering branches of trees, glowing upward from the grass, blazing from every door and window. Why they should have been turned on so abruptly after that first darkness, I do not yet know. Out of the nearest house a girl came walking. 
She was dressed charmingly in thin, bright-colored silks. A bunch of wild honeysuckle was thrust in the girdle, and over her hair was flung a scarf of sky-like blue. I knew her instantly, and began to see a glimmering of the joke that had been played on me. The dog bounded toward the girl. He was a magnificent collie. A tiny silver bell was attached to his neck by a broad ribbon. I take credit for considerable aplomb in my immediate behavior. The girl had stopped a little way off. She was laughing, but I had certainly allowed myself to be victimized. On my accusation, she at once admitted to having deceived me. She explained that, perceiving me to be misled by her appearance into thinking her one of the gypsies, she could not resist carrying out the joke. She had sent her small brother with the token and the message. I replied that the boy deserted me and that I had nearly invaded the camp of real gypsies while looking for her and the fictitious dying grandmother. At this, she appeared even more greatly amused. Elva's mirth has a particularly contagious quality. Instead of being angry, I found myself laughing with her. By this time, quite a throng of people had emerged on the lawns and leading me to a dignified, fine-looking old man who she said was her father. She presented me. In the moment, I hardly noticed that she used my first name only, Theron, which I had told her when we sat on the roadside boulder. I have observed since that all these people use the single name only in presentation and intercourse. Though lacking personal experience with artists, I have heard that they are inclined to peculiar fads of unconventionality. I had never, however, imagined that they could be attractive to a man like myself, or pleasant to know. I am enlightened. These Carcassonian colonists are the only charming, altogether delightful people whom I have ever met. One and all, they seemed acquainted with Elva's amusing jest at my expense. They laughed with us, but in recompense have made me one of themselves in the pleasantest manner. I dined in the house of Elva's father. The dining room, or rather hall, is a wonderful place. Due to much microscopic work, I am inclined to see only clumsiness, largeness, in what other people characterize as beauty. Carcassonne is different. There is a minute perfection about the architecture of these artists' houses, the texture of their clothes, and even the delicate contour of their faces, which I find amazingly agreeable. There is no conventionality of costume among them. Both men and women dress as they please, their individual taste is exquisite, and the result is an array of soft fabrics and bright colors, flower-like rather than garish. Till last night, I had never learned the charm of what is called fancy dress, nor the genial effect it may exert on even a rather somber nature, such as I admit mine to be. Elva, full of good-natured mischief, insisted that I must dress for dinner. Her demand was instantly backed by the whole laughing throng, carried off my feet in a way to which I am not at all used. I let them drape me in white robes, laced with silver embroideries like the delicate crystallization of hoarfrost. Dragged hilariously before a mirror, I was amazed at the change in my appearance. Unlike the black, scarlet-hooded gown of my university, these glittering robes lent me not dignity, but a kind of... I can only call it a noble youthfulness. I looked younger, and at the same time keener, more alive, and either the contagious spirit of my companions or some resurgence of boyishness filled me with a sudden desire to please, 
to be merry with the merrymakers, and, I must be frank, particularly to keep Elvis' attention where it seemed temporarily fixed, on myself. My success was unexpectedly brilliant. There is something in the very atmosphere of Carcassonne which, once yielded to, exhilarates like wine. I have never danced, nor desired to learn. Last night, after a banquet so perfect that I hardly recall its details, I danced. I danced with Elva, and with Elva, and always with Elva. She laughed aside all other partners. We danced on no polished floors, but out on the green lawns, under white, laughing stars. Our music was not orchestral. Wherever the light-footed couples chose to circle, there followed a young flutist, piping on his flute of white ivory. Fluttering wings, driving clouds, wind-tossed leaves, all the light, swift things of the air were in that music. It lifted and carried one with it. One did not need to learn. One danced. It seems as I write that the flute's piping is still in my ears, and that its echoes will never cease. Elva's voice is like the ivory flutels. Last night, I was mad with the music and her voice. We danced, I know not how long, nor when we ceased. This morning, I awakened in a gold and ivory room with round windows that were full of blue sky and crossed by blossoming branches. Dimly, I recalled that Elva's father had urged me to accept his hospitality for the night. Too much of such new happiness may have gone to my head, I'm afraid. At least it was nothing stronger. At dinner, I drank only one glass of wine, sparkling golden stuff, but mild, and with a taste like the fragrance of Elva's wild honeysuckle blooms. It is mid-morning now, and I am writing this, seated on a marble bench beside a pool in the central court of my host's house. I am waiting for Elva, who excused herself to attend to some duty or other. I found this book in my pocket, and thought best to make an immediate record of not only a good joke on myself, but the only really pleasant social experience I have ever enjoyed. I must lay aside these fanciful white robes, bid Elva goodbye, and return to my lonely bungalow, and Jake. The poor old man is probably tearing his hair out over my unexplained absence, but I hope for another invitation to Carcassonne. Saturday, July 22nd. I seem to be staying on indefinitely. This won't do. I spoke to Elva of my extended visit, and she laughingly informed me that people who have drunk the wine and worn the woven robes of Carcassonne seldom wish to leave. She suggested that I give up trying to escape and spend my life here. Jest, of course, but I half wished her words were earnest. She and her people are spoiling me for the common workaday world. Not that they are idle, but their occupations, as well as pleasures, are of a delicate, fascinating beauty. Whole families are stopping here, including the children. I don't care for children as a rule, but these are harmless as butterflies. I met Elva's messenger, her brother. He is a funny, dear little elf. How, even in the dark, I fancied him one of those gypsy brats is hard to conceive. But then I took Elva herself for a gypsy. My new friends engage in many pursuits besides painting. Crafts, I believe they are called. This morning, Elva took me around the shops, shops like architectural blossoms carved out of the finest marble. They make jewelry, weave fabrics, tool leather, and follow many other interesting occupations. Set in the midst of the lawns is a forge, every part of it 
even to the iron anvil, is embellished with a fern-like inlay of other metals. Several amateur silversmiths were at work there, but Elva hurried me away before I could see what they were about. I have inquired for the young painter who first told me of Carcassonne and invited me to visit him there. I can't recall his name, but on describing him to Elva, she replied vaguely that not every outsider was permanently welcome among her people. I didn't press the question. Remembering the ugliness which that same painter had been committing to canvas, I could understand that his welcome among these exquisite workers might be short-lived. He was probably banished, or banished himself, soon after our interview on the road. I must be careful, lest I wear out my own welcome. Yet the very thought of that old, rough husk of a world that I must return to brings back the sickness and the pain behind my eyes that I had almost forgotten. Sunday, July 23rd. Elva. Her presence alone is delight. The sky is not bluer than her scarf and eyes. Sunlight is a duller gold than the wild honeysuckle she weaves in garlands for our heads. Today, like child sweethearts, we carved our names in the smooth trunk of a tree. Elva. Theron. And a wreath to shut them in. I am happy. Why? Why, indeed, should I leave Carcassonne? Monday, July 24th. Still here, but this is the last night that I shall impose upon these regally hospitable people. An incident occurred today, pathetic from one viewpoint, outrageous from another. I was asleep when it happened, and only woke up at the sound of the gunshot. Some rough young mountaineers rode into Carcassonne and wantonly killed Elva's collie dog. They claimed, I believe, that the unlucky animal attacked one of their number. A lie! The dog was gentle as a kitten. He probably leaped and barked around their horses and annoyed the young brutes. They had ridden off before I reached the scene. Elva was crying, and no wonder. They had blown her pet's head clean off with a shotgun. Don't know what will be done about it. I wanted to go straight to the county sheriff, but Elva wouldn't have that. I pretended to give in. But if her father doesn't see to the punishment of those men, I will. Murderous devils. Elva is too forgiving. Wednesday, July 26th. I watched the silversmiths today. Elva was not with me. I had no idea that silver was worked like iron. They must use some peculiar amalgam, or it would melt in the furnace instead of emerging, white-hot, to be beaten with tiny, delicate hammers. They were making a strange-looking contraption. It was all silver, beaten into floral patterns, but the general shape was a riddle to me. Finally, I asked one of the smiths what they were about. He is a tall fellow with a merry, dark face. Guess, he demanded. Can't. To my ignorance, it resembles a Chinese puzzle. Something more curious than that. What? An elf trap. He laughed mischievously. Please. Well, it's a trap anyway. See this? The others had stepped back good-naturedly. With his hammer, he pressed on a lever. Instantly, two slender, jaw-like parts of the queer machine opened wide. They were set with needle-like points, or teeth. It was all red-hot, and when he removed his hammer, the jaws clashed in a shower of sparks. It's a trap, of course. I was still puzzled. Yes, and a very remarkable one. 
this trap will not only catch, but it will re-catch. I don't understand. If any creature, man, say, he was laughing again, walks into this trap, he may escape it. But sooner or later, soon I should think, it will catch him again. That is why we call it an elf trap. I perceived suddenly that he was making pure game of me. His mates were all laughing at the nonsense. I moved off, not offended, but perturbed in another way. He and his absurd silver trap toy had reminded me of the gypsies. What a horrible rough iron thing that was which they had held up to me from their forge. Men capable of creating such an uncouthly cruel instrument as that jag-toothed trap would be terrible to meet in the night. And I had come near to blundering in among them. At night! This won't do. I have been happy. Don't let me drop back into the morbidly nervous condition which invested those gypsies with more than human horror. Elva is calling me. I have been too long alone. Friday, July 28th. Home again. I am writing this in my bungalow laboratory. Gray dawn is breaking, and I have been at work here since midnight. Feel strangely depressed. Need breakfast, probably. Last night, Elva and I were together in the court of her father's house. The pool in the center of it is lighted from below to a golden glow. We were watching the goldfish with their wide, filmy tails of living lace. Suddenly, I gave a sharp cry. I had seen a thing in the water more important than goldfish. Snatching out the small collecting bottle, without which I never go abroad, I made a quick pass at the pool's glowing surface. Elva had started back, rather frightened. What is it? I held the bottle up and peered closely. There was no mistake. Dysteria, I said triumphantly. Dysteria ciliata. Dysterilus giganticus, to give a unique specimen the separate name he deserves. Why, Elva, this enormous creature will give me a new insight on his entire species. What enormous creature? For the first time I saw Elva nearly petulant. But I was filled with enthusiasm. I let her look in the bottle. There, I ejaculated. See him? Where? I can't see anything but water and a tiny speck in it. That, I explained proudly, is Dysterius Giganticus, large enough to be seen by the naked eye. Why, child, he's a monster of his kind. A freshwater variety, too. I thrust the bottle in my pocket. Where are you going? Home, of course. I can't get this fellow under the microscope any too quickly. I had forgotten how wide apart are the scientific and artistic temperaments. No explanation I could make would persuade Elva that my remarkable capture was worth walking a mile to examine properly. You are all alike, she cried. Oh, you talk of love, but your love is for gold, or freedom, or some pitiful foolish nothingness like that speck of life you call by a long name and leave me for. But, I protested, only for a little while— I shall come back. She shook her head. This was Elva in a new mood, dark brows drawn, laughing mouth drooped to a sullen curve. I felt sorry to leave her angry, but my visit had already been preposterously long. 
Besides, a rush of desire had swept me to get back to my natural surroundings. I wanted the feel of the micrometer adjuster in my fingers, and to see the round, speckled white field under the lens pass from blurred chaos to perfect definition. She let me go at last. I promised solemnly to come to her whenever she should send her call. Foolish child, why, I can walk over to Carcassonne every day if she likes. I hear Jake rattling about in the breakfast room. Conscience informs me that I have treated him rather badly. Wonder where he thought I was. Couldn't have been much worried, or he would have hunted me up in Carcassonne. August 30th. I shall not make any further entries in this book. My day for the making of records is over, I think. Any sort of records. I go back to my classes next month. God knows what I shall say to them. Elva. I may as well finish the story here. Every day, I find it harder to recall the details. If I hadn't this book, with what I wrote in it when I was, when I was there, I should believe that my brain had failed in earnest. Locke said I couldn't have been in Carcassonne. He stood in the breakfast room with the sunlight striking across him. I saw him, clearly. I saw the huge, coarse, ugly creature that he was. And in that minute, I knew. But I wouldn't admit it, even to myself. I made him go with me to Carcassonne. There was no stream. There was no bridge. The houses were wretched bungalows, set about on the bare, flat, yellow clay of the mountainside. The people, artists save the mark, were a common, carelessly dressed, painting-aproned crowd who fulfilled my original idea of an artist's colony. Their coarse features and thick skins sickened me. Locke walked home beside me, very silent. I could hardly bear his company. He was gross, coarse, human. Toward evening, managing to escape his company, I stole up the road to the Gypsy's Grove. The huts were empty. That queer look, as of a flat, dark tapestry, was gone from the grove. I crossed the plank bridge. Among the trees I found ashes, and a depression where the forge had stood. Something else, too. A dog, or rather its unburied remains. The yellow cur. Its head had been blown off by a shotgun. An ugly little bell lay in the mess, tied to a piece of string. One of the trees. It had a smooth trunk. And carved in the bark. I can't write it. I went away and left those two names carved there. The wild honeysuckle has almost ceased to bloom. I can leave now. Locke says I am well, and that I can return to my classes. I have not entered my laboratory since that morning. Locke admires my willpower for dropping all that till physical health should have returned. Willpower. I shall never, as long as I live, look into a microscope again. Perhaps she will know that somehow, and send or call for me quickly. I have drunk the wine and worn the woven robes of her people. They made me one of them. Is it right that they should cast me out because I did not understand what I have since guessed the meaning of so well? I can't bear the human folk about me. They are clumsy, revolting, and I can't work. God only knows what I shall say to my classes. Here is the end of my last record, Till She Calls.
There was silence in Locke's private study. At last, the doctor expelled his breath in a long sigh. He might have been holding it all the time. Great heavens, he ejaculated. Poor old Tadamus. And I thought his trouble in the summer there was a temporary lapse. But he talked like a sane man, acted like one too, by Jove. With his mind in that condition, and in spite of the posse, he must have been with the gypsies all that week. You can see it. Even through his delusions, you catch occasional notes of reality. I heard of that dog shooting, and he speaks of being asleep when it happened. Where was he concealed that the posse didn't find him, drugged and hidden under some filthy heap of rags in one of the huts, do you think? And why hide him at all, and then let him go? He returned the very day they left. At the volley of questions, Wharton shook his head. I can't even guess about that. He was certainly among the gypsies, but as for his delusions, to call them so, there is a kind of beauty and coherence about them which I, well, which I don't like. The doctor eyed him sharply. You can't mean that you, doctor, said Wharton softly, do you recall what he wrote of the silversmiths in their work? They were making an elf trap. Well, I think the elf trap caught him. What? Locke's tired eyes opened wide. A look of alarm flashed into them. The alarm was for Wharton, not himself. Wait, said the latter. I haven't finished. You know that I was in the classroom at the moment when Professor Tadamus died. Yes? Yes. I was the first to reach him, but before that I stood near the desk. There are three windows at the foot of that room. Every other man there faced the desk. I faced the windows. The professor entered, laid down his book, and turned to the class. As he did so, a head appeared in one of those windows. They are close to the ground, and a person standing outside could easily look in. The head was a woman's. No, I am not inventing this. I saw her head draped in a blue scarf. I noticed because the scarf's blueness gave me the strangest thrill of delight. It was the exact blue of the sky behind it. Then she had raised her hand. I saw it. In her fingers was a spray of yellow flowers, yellow as sunshine. She waved them in a beckoning motion, like this. Then Tadamus dropped. And there are legends, you know, of strange people, either more or less than human who appear as gypsies, but are not real gypsies, that possess queer powers. Their outer appearance is rough and vile, but behind that, as a veil, they live a wonderful, hidden life of their own. And a man who has been with them once is caught, caught in the real elf trap which the smith's work only symbolized. He may escape, but he can't forget nor be joined again with his own race, while to return among them he must walk the dark road that Tadamus had taken when she called. Oh, I've scoffed at old wives' tales with the rest of our overeducated modern kind. I can't ever scoff again, you see, because... What's that? A prescription? For me? Why, doctor, you don't yet understand. I saw her, I tell you. Elva. Elva. Elva of the wild honeysuckle and the sky-like scarf. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Terrence. And I'm the one they call Fred. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about The Elf Trap 
by Francis Stevens, first published in Argosy, July 5th, 1919. I desperately went through all my Argosy issues. I did not find the original. But we have uh, the Fantastic Novels version with a beautiful illustration by Virgil Finlay. Um, doesn't really represent any particular scene, I don't think. <laughs> um, but it's Virgil Finlay, so it doesn't have to. It's beautiful as it is. Um, I, yeah, I, I, it's I not also, very elvish or trappy, is it? Um, it's starry and bubbly, which is <laughs> useful. <laughs> it's a it, it's a fizz, it's a fizzy wine that you drink while dressed in robes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and did you notice the color of the wine? Golden. That's correct. Um, uh, if you do have your uh, searchable copies. I want you to type in yellow and see how many times that comes up. Because I, for some reason, I I was like, holy cow, that's a lot of yellow, yeah? 19. Yeah. I was um, told there would be no math. <laughs> there's seven times we had the word gold. In 19 yep. and gold. Um, so yellow is an important color for, like, turn of the century, fantastical, if that's how you pronounce it, um, fiction, you know? Yellow, um, uh, yellow. yellow king. Yeah, the king in yellow. There's um, it's like 1890s. There was like a, I, I think I might have even done a post on it years ago, about how everything's yellow. <laughs> the uh, there was yellow journalism and yellow uh, peril. The yellow peril, but the, yellow there was wallpaper. Age. What's that? Yellow wallpaper. Yellow wallpaper. Yes, I said gilded age. And oh, oh yes. yes, gilded in gold. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to see if I can find that. But um, I, I don't know what it means here exactly, but there's a yellow road. There's yellow mud. Uh, the yellow robes, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, it, white robes. Is it white? Yes, white yeah. robes. Okay. Um, everybody's colored in flowers, right? Her hair, the, was she, she, what kind of flowers has she got in her hands? Honeysuckle. Uh, honeysuckles. Those yeah, are yellow, yellow. honeysuckles. In there, oh yeah, um, it's very um, image based, interestingly. And then there's the blue, the blue of her scarf and the blue of her hair, and her name is Elva, which is great. And I think we get her brother's name too, uh, and it's like Elfo or something. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's a, a different character. Um, so it seems to be that I thought the yellow is mostly. Like, all the invitation part where he's been invited into this world seems to be yellow. And then I don't think we see a lot of yellow once we're in that world, once we're in Alva's world. Then it's well, all white. Gold. There's gold, mm-hmm. for sure. And the, the wine they drink is gold, right? Yeah, but it's very – everything after that is white and silver seem to be the main colors in there. Mm. The, the colors are the signifiers for the, uh, the, the opening and the closing scene, right? With the Right. And this is more of a writer thing, so maybe we'll get Fred to, uh, or Marissa, Fred and Marissa to explain to us the effect of having so many nested narratives. There's a hell of a lot of nesting going on here, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like an outer, outer, outer narrator. And I, I take that to be like Francis Stevens, and that's the opening paragraph. In this, our well-advertised modern world crammed with engines, death-dealing shells, life-dealing serums, and science. He who listens to old wives' tales is counted idle. 
he who believes them a superstitious fool. Yet there are some legends which have a strange deathless habit of recrudescence in many languages and lands. That is the outer, outer, outer narrator, right? Yep. And then, in the next paragraph, of one such I have a story to tell. It was related to me by a well-known specialist in nervous diseases, not an instance of the possible truth behind fable, but a curious case in which I quote his words, the delusions of a diseased brain were reflected by a second and otherwise sound mentality. Um, now, th- that this is hinting to the doubling or tripling that's going on within those narratives, right? Um, but who is this person who related it to the outer narrator? Is it Dr. Locke? Yeah, that's how I read it. It was a physician, right? She mentions or Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't a, specify a in nervous diseases, that makes me think it's a psychiatrist or Yeah. Yeah. And the, the ending about the prescription for me, why doctor you don't you understand, so yeah. Right. So No, wait, the prescription was that was for um Wharton or Whiten or whatever his name is, right? Tony? Wharton is the is the inner narrator, right? Mm-hmm. And he's the also the lab assistant. Yeah, so we got but, we've got an outer outer narrator who's not not named, but I would say is Francis Stevens, aka Gertrude Barrows Bennett, right? And then we've got the inner narrator who's Wharton, and then inside of that is uh, Thadamus, Theron Thadamus. Um, his and, diary, yeah. And then we've got a listener who is Dr. Locke, right? Um, and uh, I don't think this is supposed to be a comedy, but um, there are some definitely funny parts, uh, especially early on when he, he says, uh, why don't you read this to me? I, I, don't, I don't have my glasses on or whatever, right? So he reads it to him aloud. And the first paragraph ends with um, uh, Locke is a fool. <laughs> <laughs> And then the second paragraph ends with, Locke is a fool. <laughs> he keeps reading. And then about halfway through the the reading of the journal, um, they come out of it and talk about, like, I don't need to hear any more of this. <laughs> it's just insults against me and my, my, my advice going bad and basically I killed my patient. Um, and he says, no, no, the best part's coming up. The important part, the part that uh, relates to what I saw, right? Um, so and then there's uh, the one where it looks like it's going to turn to a sex story. It's just like, no, 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 it's keep, oh, let me keep reading. It gets, it's not yeah, what that's you think exactly, it is. That, that's the exact point where, um, yeah, he's fall, he's falling in love, etc. Uh, it's pretty chaste, um, uh, for all that. But, uh, I want, I, w- I want to compare this to the different layers of reality that are going on. So there's, two roads that diverge from his his place, right? He's got the Negro, uh, I don't know, caretaker um, in his place. He clears out the bedroom. And then when you go outside, the road diverges. Uh, one is, it, I, I believe it says it's like a yellow track or a yellow mud track. And then the other is, uh, goes to Carcassonne, right? And at that meeting point, that's where he sees the the artist, um, and then he oh, sees... Yep, here it is. Two roads led thither from the valley. Once 
that motion used by the artist columnist was as good and broad as any Carolina mountain road could hope to be. The other, a winding yellow narrow track past the lonely bungalow of Dr. Locke, unless split into two paths, one which led on to further heights, the second to Carcassonne. Right. So there's this, uh, there's a, a confusion that happens in his own mind, right? When he goes to uh, down here and he talks to the artist, he's like, what an idiot or what, you know, his, what does he see there? And then he, when he's coming out of it, he walks out of the bedroom late in the story, I guess, or early in the story, depending on how you look at it. He, he says, um, I've been with my friends in Carcassonne. But that's backed up by the fact that he thinks that he was going to the gypsy camp, but then he realizes, no, no, it's the Carcassonian camp with all the artists. So it's not a doubling. It's more like a tripling of reality. You see what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can and, I just point out that yeah, that, yeah. Um, that um, more primitive path to the gypsy camp is the road less traveled? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. What's the year on that? I just did a couple of shows. I think it's around the same time, actually, now that I think about it. I did a couple of shows on um, the Robert Frost, and there's a, a Lovecraft poem that's very similar. Um, we, we could spend a half hour just talking about that, uh, The Roadless Traveled, because that is a very sly and sneaky poem, and people do hmm. that when they quote it. They don't realize he doesn't, he doesn't take 19, Roadless Traveled. 1916. Yeah, yeah. 19, he, he, on, he only says, I, I will say I took the road less traveled, but did he really take the road less traveled? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's ambiguity even there, but that's just an aside. No, it, it's, it, it's, I think it's rela- like, um, it's actually got a really interesting history to it. So it says uh, published in 1916, yeah. Um, so how widely distributed would that poem be by then? You know, I, mm. I think it takes a little while. Um, but actually, I, I don't want to get too far into it because I did a whole show on it. But oh, um, yeah. it's really interesting. It was written for a friend, uh, that poem, um, who really enjoyed walking, <laughs> in walking tours in England, very ro- romantic uh, poetry style stuff, right? You know, nature poems. Mm. And... Uh, uh, apparently it was um, to help, like, he wrote it and it helped him decide whether he should move to the States or join the army uh, during World War One. the friend. And uh, it made him enlist in the army and then he got killed in the war. <laughs> like, the power of a poem well, yeah. is like, you know, uh, w- w- that poem is, it's super tricky because uh, and, I, you know, the other thing um, that I sort of got into in that podcast about it is, like, everybody has your take on it that I've talked to, Fred. <laughs> um, but the take is that everybody else doesn't understand it. <laughs> yeah, know? okay, good. Well, I... For- and then the thing is, is, is that actually true? Like, like when I heard it the first time, I'm like, I don't get it exactly what's going on at... Uh, but then, you know, if you read it very closely, it's pretty obvious um, he's being very playful. Yeah. So is, I, is, I only I only picked up that interpretation from someone else. I would have never noticed it myself. Huh. But it, it, in fact, it's close to the message of the off trap because he took yes. the what he interpreted as the poetic path, the poetic road, the elf road, and he, he met death. 
Mm. Well, so, so, yeah, the the that's something. There's, there's <laughs> he something. died. He definitely died in a certain yeah. sense, right? Because his physical yeah. form is destroyed. Yeah. Uh, but it's very Lovecraftian in the non, you know, tentacly way. It's very Lovecraftian <laughs> in the in the um, wow in the dream you, dream cycles way. Because, what, what, what will we call that special category? N T L non. Tentacle Lovecraftian. Lovecraftianism. <laughs> yeah, well, most most people think Lovecraft is is tentacles, and he's yeah. not really right. Um, but like, if you look at Celepheus uh, uh, or um, uh, the White Ship, uh, there's one. I, I think it's Celepheus ends with him, the main character, you know, dead on the rocks beneath uh, his ancestral home, but actually he's a king in. Uh, dreamland right um it, how do we read the ending what what's marissa what's your take on the ending is he is he happy or is he sad our main character i think he's happy in the way that like people joining a cult are happy <laughs> good answer <laughs> excellent <laughs> wow yeah because to me it seems you can view the elves as evil or good, or maybe they're just other. Maybe they're yeah. just so different. Uh, maybe maybe the author's trying to suggest that there there is possibly categories that uh, uh, you can truly escape those two mm. categories. Mm. I'm going to read the, the, the other one I was telling you. Everybody knows, uh, Marissa, I assume you know, um, the Robert Frost, because it's like, it's they teach it in American high school, but do you know about it? The what? Sorry? The Robert Frost poem called The Road Not Taken. No, I didn't know it. Uh, I'm going to read that to you then, too. Cool. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a, in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So the main way people misread this poem, we think in theory, Fred, <laughs> is like they give it as a, um, I don't know, I, I want to say a valedictorian speech, right? And they, they're saying, I'm different and better than everybody else because I took the, the, the harder path. <laughs> yes. And that's Outside absolutely the wrong. Yeah, I, I'm an I'm out of the box thinker, and that's why I'm valedictorian. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> just me looking down my nose at the snobs, right? <laughs> Which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but that's not actually what it's about. It's about a guy thinking about um, how in the future he's going to be all uh, lording it over everybody for all the bright choices he made and I got my money, Jack. I worked hard for it. I inherited that money. Just like, you know, he's going to be, he's going to be looking down 
from his path and say, oh, I can go both ways. I can go, I can be a doctor or a lawyer. When I explain it to students, it's about career choices is one way of looking at it. But actually, um, it's, it's very meta, right? It's, yeah, well, it's frustrating because first he says one of the paths was less traveled. And he says, yeah, but actually, nah, they're the same. They're exactly so, the same. So, it's, uh, so you don't even know whether there really was a road less traveled or not. That's Yes, mm-hmm. uh, that's right. And the title, The Road Not Taken. Okay. And people just skip over that line. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a, a, a very far less well-known Lovecraft poem that I compare it to. And I, I like Lovecraft's even more, even though the other one's quite nice. Uh, Lovecraft's is more gloomy, which I like. Um, <laughs> it's called The Rutted Road. And it uh, right. published in 1916. Oh, Terrence has heard the podcast on it. Yeah. Uh, it was published in 1916 in a fanzine, so not a lot of people read it. Uh, but it goes like this. The Rutted Road by H.P. Lovecraft. Bleak autumn mists send down their chilly load. A raven shivers as he flutters by. Throw lonely pasture winds the rutted road where brooding elms looms. Where brooding, sorry, where bordering elms loom bare against the sky. Those deep-sunk tracks which dumbly point ahead, or traveled sands that stretch to vision's rim, wake hidden thoughts, a longing half a dread, till fancy pauses at the prospect dim. Descending shadows bid me haste along, the ancient ruts so many knew before, a cricket mocks me with his mirthless song, I fear the path I fain would see no more. Yet here with oxcart drawn each thoughtless swain, his course pursued, nor left the common way. Can I, superior to the rustic train, on brighter byroads find the dawning day? With questing look I scan the darkening moor. Perchance o'er yonder mound all blessings wait. But still the rutted road's resistless lure constrains my progress to the paths of fate. So must I grope between the brooding trees where those before me found the mystic night. I travel onward past the withered leaves, but what beyond the bend awaits my sight? Do fairer lands than this invite my feet? Will fate on me her choicest boons bestow? What lies ahead my weary souls to my weary soul to greet? Why is it that I do not wish to know? Ooh, that last line. Ooh, mm. ow. That that's that one makes that leaves a mark. Yeah, it's a it's a very powerful uh, poem in the same like oh, I have a hard choice to make. Should I go to university or become a plumber like my dad? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Should I become that insane is... like my dad and locked away in an asylum for all my years? <laughs> <laughs> that is not the voice I imagined when I'm listening to that poem. But... <laughs> well, it, but it, damn it, those mocking crickets. Yeah, so he would be. <sighs> 1916 he would have been I don't know in his mid 20s when that came out I guess hmm. 1890 19, yeah so it would be about uh, 26 um, it's not a uh, as young as you know a super young man but it's it's certainly capturing that feeling but this is not the poem I was thinking of when I was reading this story do you guys know are you psychic do you know the poem I was thinking of the ancient track Ah, that's another good. Uh, that's the name of his uh, collect uh, the collection of all his poems as well. But no, uh, not a not Lovecraft at all. 
Um, so the this story that we're reading today in 2019 came out in 1919, so 100 years ago. And 99 years before uh, the Elf Trap came out, there was a, a poem by a guy named John Keats. And I have found the original, not the... Uh, not the more common modern version, which makes it... La Belle Dame Sans Merci. You got it. Uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. I've got it from the original publication in The Indicator, which was a fanzine, I guess. Um, 1820 fanzine. And uh, it, it's it's better, I think, because it the first line, instead of having it be a knight telling the story, K-N-I-G-H-T... It is a white, W-I-G-H-T. Which is an which, old name for a man. Exactly. You don't have to, it's not just for fancy dudes, right? Yeah, it's for everybody. Anybody can be entrapped. Any man, anyways. <laughs> Marissa, you're excluded. This does not apply to you. <laughs> uh, okay, now we have to have a gender flip love, Belle Dame Sons Mercy, or maybe a genderqueer love, Belle Dame Sons Mercy. Well, yeah, gender, gender fluid, maybe, or yeah, why not? The, They're elves. Uh, that's right. El, elves. What, what, what's that line from Aliens? There's a there's a line from Aliens where they're all uh, teasing each other about uh, the last port they went into, and uh, oh yeah, he says, uh, "Got to get me some of that Arcturian poontang," and he says, "Yours <laughs> male." And he says, "Don't matter when it's Arcturian." <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I heard that first uh, I first heard that word uh, Poontang What a funny word It's a Vietnam era You know Yeah word. Vulgar slang Yeah Yeah But um, Yeah vulgar slang um, But I, it was in the movie The Stanley Kubrick movie uh, About Vietnam What's that called? Full Metal Jacket Full Metal Jacket Exactly And I'm like what the hell does that mean? I had to ask one of my uncles. <laughs> oh, 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 that was good. That was a conversation. Like Puntang. It's, it's kind of a weird word. Anyways, um, uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Everybody familiar with this? Absolutely. Mercy, you know this one? No. Nope. Oh, it's oh, a great. Wow. Uh, Fred, you're, you don't know this one? No. Oh, you, you poor boy. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to put the image of this one in the in the show notes for sure. They, that that painting by Waterhouse. Uh, there's a number, uh, including I did an illustration of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I well, you know, don't. you know what I'm talking about—the one with the long hair. Yeah, everybody yeah. in uh, a waterhouse and uh, La Belle Dame Sans Merci. It's spelled L A space Belle B E L L E Dame D A M E, like we would say Dame. And Sans is the French word for without S A N S. Merci M E R C Y, not M E. R-C-I. So it's funny because uh, all the words are French except for the last one. And if you read it, the last one is a, as a as a French word, merci, means the woman without thanks. <laughs> the beautiful woman without thanks. But the, I think the better way of reading it is the beautiful woman without mercy. Mm-hmm. Right? Or the merciless beautiful woman would be another way of saying it, but whatever. So there's a there's a couple other um, changes rather than the standard in the original, but I just I think it's important uh, to get that word white, which is not only cool because it's it's from Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> Barrow Whites, 
they're just Barrow dudes. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, when I first read Lord of the Rings, whites. What the hell's a white? <laughs> oh, and, Sounds and, and a I, monster. Well, yeah, I, 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 I was into Dungeons and Dragons at that point, so it's like white. Oh my god, it's undead. Run. Yeah. It means dude, old dude from a long time ago. Yeah, I read right? that later. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'll read uh, La Belle d'Homme Sans Merci for you. La Belle d'Homme Sans Merci by John Keats. Ah, what can ail thee, wretched white, alone and palely loitering? The sedge is withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Uh, it's hard to read this next word. Ah, what can ail thee, wretched white, so haggard and so woe-begone? The squirrel's granary is full, and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow with anguish moist and fever dew, and on thy cheek a fading rose fast withereth too. And it doesn't indicate this in the poem, but uh, now the second speaker comes in. I met a lady in the meads, full, be- full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long. For sideways would she lean and sing a fairy song. I made a garland for her head, and bracelets too, and fragrant zone. She looked at me, and as she did, she looked at me as she did love, and made sweet moan. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manna dew. And sure, in language strange, she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot. And there she gazed, and there she gazed and sighed deep, and there I shut her wild, sad eyes, so kissed to sleep. And there we slumbered on the moss, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamed, on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors deep, pale warriors, death pale were, were they all. Who cried, La belle d'homme sans merci hath thee in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloom, with horrid waning, sorry, with horrid warning gaped wide, and I awoke and found me here on the cold hillside. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering, though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. So I take yeah. this to be a poem about a dude who gets thinks he's uh, ravishing a beautiful lady, but she's actually ravishing him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, knocking him yeah, on the head. I can see why you head. thought of this poem. Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and once he once he escapes, he's kind of like pent there, and like he just, he feels he's lesser than he was because he's just like standing there and just doesn't have. Life and well, kind of like our kind of like our central character here in in the Elf Trap. I mean, mm. Steve, Stevens yeah. clearly was thinking of this of this poem amongst others when coming up with the, with the story. Yeah, it's even. I think it's even in the opening line, right? Um, or the opening paragraph, anyways. Uh, there are some legends which have a strange, deathless habit of recrudescence in many languages and lands, and when uh, our Hero, Theron Tadamus, which is a pretty interesting name, um, when he uh, describes how Elva speaks, he 
doesn't say this is what she said. He says, I can't exactly say what she said, but this is what I took from it. Right. Mm. She's not speaking English. Right. Now, maybe uh, one interpretation is she's speaking gypsy. Right. Or Romany, I guess it Romany. would be. Um, but the thing is, is uh, the gypsies were definitely there, I think, in one sense of the, of the universe, right? And then in another sense of the universe, the Carcassonian colonists, the uh, painters, were definitely there. But uh, were they the same group of people in another yeah. sense of the universe, right? So I was getting the sense that the gypsies... Um he, he keeps on calling, whenever he's looking at them as gypsies, he keeps on call, calling the whole scene as like a tapestry. So it's almost like they're the, they've got this kind of like ugly shield mm. around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tapestry so word like comes a, up. Yeah. yeah the and he always calls it flat. So it almost, feel, yeah, it almost feels like that is not real either. Like that's like part of their illusion, maybe to keep who they don't want. But yeah, like come a, near them there. You're like a trouble mm-hmm. whale. So like you see the ugliness and you're not going to go near and leave the elves alone. And there and there's the parallel, consider the parallel between the two traps. You have the gypsies making this big, iron, clumsy, inelegant trap. And then you have the silver trap mm. of the elves. Iron, of course, being something that fairies are vulnerable to, too. Mm. So it's like a, I didn't think of that, Paul. That's good. Yeah, because yeah, so I, I was thinking at first, like, oh, they tried to chat. Trap the fairies, and then I thought, like, no, they're actually they're double blind for the. He's fairies. the fairy. See, <laughs> you, you <figured> it out. <laughs> I, yeah, he is pretty weird, right? Like he he says this is the most the best social interaction he's ever had. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's also it's so striking, like how much he how ugly he finds the mm, the nature and the world and sounding right. Yeah, everything's dark, everything's disgusting. Like, um, he doesn't understand why someone would want to paint the scene of nature because it's it's dreary and boring, and he just he's just a bit of a dick, really. I guess he's, like, ripe for the picking. I don't there's know. Just, there's <laughs> something going on in, in the science uh, versus rom- romanticism as well, right? The yeah. fact that this guy yeah. is uh, my, one of my favorite words. Uh, he's a microscopist. Microscopist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know cytology which is basically looking at shit under microscopes when on the on the opening paragraphs when they're contrasting is setting you up for the contrast between romanticism which is a realm of life and feeling mm-hmm. and um warmth and connection versus science which is portrayed with extreme negativity that it's you know it's science is basically a dead bug pinned to a card Mm-hmm. With a with a Latin inscription uh, underneath it would be my interpretation, and yeah. to me that really sets you up for oh so he's going to encounter this other realm and he's going to be forced to confront the the limitations and the ugliness and the the blindness of his scientific vision, and so it's only uh, I think I think. I think that the the simplest interpretation is to just believe that the the elves are are these good creatures who are going to help him escape from that. But it's only later that she throws in the other details that invite us another interpretation. 
Well, the the fact that there's a trap, and then that when 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 he sees it the second time, and he dismisses it again for the second. Well, first time he he doesn't want to think about it when it's iron. When it's silver, right. and they tell him the truth, it's a it's an elf trap, and more importantly, this is a special kind of trap because it can re-get you once it's got you, right? Mm-hmm. If you manage to escape, um, it, it, if it's all metaphor, then that makes you know his disappearance at the end is. Um, uh, he escapes, well, he's trapped again, right? Um, so it's not exactly, it's not the exact same story as, um, La Belle dans Saint Merci because first of all, she's all by herself, right? Uh, the beautiful woman without mercy, mm-hmm. um, where she, our Elva has a community. She's got a father, she's got a younger brother and, uh, there's a whole community making, you know, crafts is what he calls it right as opposed to arts arts and crafts right yeah. the arts at uh, the artist colony and uh francis stephen has a, a bit of fun talking about how the artists are all at carcassonne are all um uh, yeah they're willing to search for him but they all bring their easels and and right. <laughs> as soon as they see something quite striking, they sit down, set up their easel to paint a, a tit in a tree, you know, a little bird. Sounds oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah, it reminded me of my camera. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to help search the woods for the dead boy, but. <laughs> but I like this composition. So let me bring my camera and my easel and my poetry book. It is hilarious. <laughs> it is pretty funny. Um, uh, this, so. It's almost like he could have been taken away by either group, right? If it, 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 we at this period of time, gypsies are not um, thought of as uh, just equal human beings as everybody else. They are elf-like, and they move from place to place. You don't see them often. They're in the rural areas, right? Uh, I don't know what got you on this kick, uh, Fred. The rural ruins things, but you <laughs> you're more likely to see a, a, a fairy. Or uh, elf, yeah, uh, you know. Well, well, just to explain, um, I've been taking pictures of these barns that are falling apart uh, in the in the um, upper Midwest of the U.S. You had a lot of these barns. What is the term? More not mortar and pinion, but uh, uh, these old wooden barns put together with large beams of woods, wood mm-hmm. and wooden pegs. And it is now uh, does not make economic sense to keep maintaining them. They have to be painted every few years. And if mm-hmm. you stop, simply stop painting them, stop shingling them, they will fall apart. And so now we've entered a period in time where uh, they, they are falling apart, that people are letting them go. And everywhere, you, it, you just pick any random country road right now, and you will come across a barn where there's gap gaping holes in the roof or the wood is falling off the sides mm-hmm. and it's very you know every the appeal of ruins of course the the melancholy of them and um and in about 15 years 90 percent of those are going to be gone forever and they'll mm-hmm. never be rebuilt and now is the time to start photographing i i have for years i've been saying somebody should really be photographing them and then i thought mm-hmm. okay it's going to be me mm-hmm. uh, so i'm just just taking snapshots i'm not i'm you know i'm not any uh kind of fine photographer or anything but um 
Yeah, so um, is the hashtag is <laughs> it's hashtag rural ruins, and other people use that too. And uh, oh, I didn't uh, know it wasn't just you. Yeah, there um, there are other better pictures than mine, but um, out there. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I absolutely love it. And um, every couple of weeks, I go out and collect a fresh batch. And I I've never driven more than five ten miles from where I live. Mostly, wow. I mean. I can find all I need within five miles of my house here in wow. uh, southern Michigan. Yeah, no, Are you no. in a rural area to begin with? Um, I'm very uh, sort of exurban, yeah. But um, mm. yeah, uh, there's a I'm in a subdivision, but there's a cornfield next to my subdivision, subdivision cool. so it's that kind of place. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking through some of your stuff now, Fred. Wow, I missed this in my race for power and glory. I'm following. I'm, no, I'm not. Why, how am I not following you on Twitter? Stupid Twitter. Fix well, that. I, I, I made a really you, good uh, joke uh, yeah. about your rural ruins. You, you you were tweeting, and then you said, went to visit the in-laws on Upstate or whatever. Said, <laughs> rural ruins? Question mark. Oh, <laughs> Jesse. Yeah, the, the, I, the, there, is, there is a poignancy to these pictures of, and, mm-hmm. and these yeah. blowing part buildings. And uh, I was there was one I was thinking about uh, while you were talking. Um, it was the paint. The paint was on there, but only under the e- eaves, right? Like it just, it just the sun strips it off. The rain strips right. it off. Right? Yeah, uh, particularly the southern. The southern exposure is where the shingles fall apart first, yeah. and where the paint uh, wears off first. Baked off, and 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 yeah, so that paint is is what prevents it from collapsing. Um, so are these on far- are these mostly on farms that are still in use? Yes, usually. Um, usually uh, there'll be a pole barn, a modern metal sided pole barn mm. nearby, and uh, so you have to w- w- maneuver. You know, f- find a spot where you can photograph the old barn without any of the modern or maintained stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> visible, because that kills the mood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it's really mostly the Midwest where it where these barns where you it would make sense to, uh, you know, you're going to store the hay and the straw for the for the winter. And um, out west, for example, they didn't really build barns so much, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know out east. <laughs> Paul, Paul, you're in the uh, are you in New England? No, I'm, I'm in Minnesota. Oh, man. Well, you must have barns somewhere. I, I, are I, you in? I'm in I'm in the I'm in the middle of the Twin Cities, so I have to go yeah. outward to find these things. Yeah, but you're the you're the expert photographer. You should be getting in on some of this action. Well, because... well, well I, I I am putting a pin in this idea. Yes. Okay. Good. Good for you. Yeah. No. The, the, this sounds relevant to my photographic interests. So thank you. Good. Excellent. So bringing it back to the story, bring uh, back to the story. Di- <laughs> yeah. We got diverged a little bit uh, in a yellow wood. Um, <laughs> did uh, what do we take about what, what do we make about this? Like, is is this a going native story? Right. So he he finds the uh, if if Evan were here, maybe he was supposed to be, and I forgot to add him. That'd be real bad. Um, if Evan were here. Uh, I would ask him about this. Um, Paul, you, you know what I'm talking about. Is this him like going native? He says, oh, these, these yeah. are natives. Are- He's thinking like Taipean stories. Yeah, like or, you know, uh, you know, just uh, Richard Kipling sort of um, 
look, these foreigners are are disgusting. And oh, wait, there's a pretty girl. And yeah, uh, you know what? She's mm-hmm. not as disgusting as I thought. I you know, know what? He... Love them all. I don't think he does go through that though, because he still he actually sees them the opposite as like these beautiful, clean, you know, the white ivory flute and the dancing. Like there's a okay, he's dancing on the grass, I guess, but um. He he's still even when he's with her he's still thinking of like yeah she must be tending her disgusting grandmother you know like <laughs> he's still like trapped in this yeah. they're they're still disgusting gypsies and then these her and the ones that I'm meeting are these special clean beautiful people who pay attention to detail and have pretty colors but there's, there's no that. question there's no question that he as he is portrayed that he needs somebody to come in and break him out of this very crabbed uh, world of scientific examination. And, no, uh, I disagree. Because um, the only thing that was powerful enough to make him um, come back to our world was um, his passion for science. For science. Yeah. Yeah. It was exactly. almost There's the tension the, there. It's not one way, right? It's almost on the same level as... Um, uh, the passion for Elva, and she does a a, a fit of pig. Oh, you boys always like uh, talk about right. love, and you go back to your baseball games and your and your and your sci- uh, your microscopes. Right. So, By Terrence, the way, you... terrible relationship. <laughs> yeah. You're falling in love with a girl, and she's like, "No, now you've got to stay with me forever, and you can't go back to well, your that's world." Why, that's why I'm thinking it's it's it like it's an elf trap, and it like. Are, they're not really eating him, right? They're not like uh, trapping him and skinning him, and like um, that's not really what's going on. And yet, um, uh, think of that dog, right? The yellow dog. First, it's vicious and it's a cur, which is a, a nice way of saying uh, mutt, right? Or maybe not a nice way of saying no, mutt. It's the worst way of saying mutt. Um, mongrel, I guess, is worse than cur. I mean, it's starving and it's it's slavering and it's barky, right? But when he sees it again uh, under the I don't know the el- uh, wearing the elf glasses, right? Or, <laughs> he, or or in the elf world, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, lovely and it's it's uh, mm. not a mongrel. It's and it's got a silver bell, right? Yeah, this is another thing that changes from yellow when it's everything inviting him in is yellow, the yellow path, the yellow dog, the yellow flowers, and then once he passes over that bridge then now it's a collie dog with a silver bell and mm. everything yeah everything turns to gold instead of yellow gold mm-hmm. fish gold wine and um uh going back to that um the la belle dame Saint merci remember um when he takes her uh, she takes him to his, her elfin grot which is grotto right right yep um it, she feeds him Honey wild, which is yellow, mana dew. Well, mana is well, food from God, but more importantly, dew is just water, right? Um, and and roots of relish sweet. Roots aren't sweet, right? As I introduce all my Asian students to root beer, um, they say tastes like medicine, right? It depends beet on your root beer you bought. You're giving them Jesse says <laughs> no, no, beetroot. The thing is, is is beetroot is sweet. Yeah, well, but it's it, like there are things that are sweet that are roots, but generally roots are bitter, 
and and that's to prevent oh, yeah. from being eaten, right? Um, now we've got beetroots, which we do cultivate, but generally roots, like it tastes Chinese medicine. Basically, it's a bunch of, you know, all all the word drug ultimately comes from plant, right? The word uh, a word meaning plant. So almost all drugs are from plants, but not necessarily in in, in any case medicine has a distinctive taste right there's a, a product of uh i think it's buckskins mixture they advertise the fact that it tastes terrible right <laughs> but works they say and we, we we associate the idea of you know tasting like medicine right she says she found me roots of or the poem says she found me roots of relish sweet relish is like uh can be you know, there is such a thing as sweet relish, right? But roots aren't aren't relish. And if you relish roots, um, it it's like he's she's she's cooked him a meal, you know, a gypsy meal, and he's like, oh, I, I can't eat this slop. And then he tastes it, like, damn, that's good, right? Like there's a there's this switch. Everything everything that's horrible about the gypsies becomes wonderful, mm-hmm. and and everything that uh, those those stupid Carcassonian uh, painters are doing is like ridiculous. He looks at the guy's painting and says, "There's nothing of v- significance or value in your in this image. Why are you painting that thing? Stop, you know these falling down how these rural ruins, right? Why are you painting that?" And and he tries to explain, and then he somewhere in this story it summarizes what his thoughts are on the guy. It's like he doesn't have a thought in his head to explain why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right and and of course, <laughs> well, it's it's like um, I read you a poem and you say, uh huh, and how much can you sell it for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you di- eat it? <laughs> yeah, th- th- there are different lenses onto which you can, um, you know, <laughs> use and describe the world. And his lens is, uh, I'm a racist. I find them disgusting. I don't like their food. Their dogs looks mean. Um, and, oh, painters, you, they're stupid, but there's something fundamentally wrong in his life. Right. That's why he's been sent on vacation. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's something that the the story soft pedals at the beginning and it doesn't bring up again. The fact that he's basically kind of trying to get himself well by being in this uh, rural setting. (laughs) And that's why I don't think he gets, sorry, carry on, Jesse. Oh, uh, I was just going to say, and did you notice his, like, I, I want to go, I, I, I like how important names are in fiction stories, because you can pick anything, right? Um, uh, his doctor's name is Locke, Dr. Locke, John mm-hmm. Locke, empiricist, yeah. right? The total empiricist. If you go to John Locke's Wikipedia entry, he has the most beautiful signature you've ever seen. It's like, wow, I'd like to practice my signature to make it look like John Locke, just totally readable, nice and flowery, but completely readable right he's sort of the he is the uh prototype of looking at the world as empiricist right which is um you know let's go out there and test that shit let's go out there and uh take like that's what brings him out of that elfin grot right is that uh he's looking at the beautiful goldfish right in a freshwater goldfish and then he sees a microscopic infusoria which Dysteria. is like a bacteria, right? yeah and, and then he can see it with his naked eye right and he scoops it up because he has in his pockets a vial right and that's the only thing that can pull him out of that place and he runs back to his 
his place and he's out he's out of the loop, right? Yeah. He almost uh, escapes. See, I don't think this guy got well or had any growth in this story. Like that's why I think um you're talking about his racism, Jesse. It's like he doesn't see them as like dark skinned people that he's um understanding are just human beings like him. He literally sees like their skin is whiter when he first steps over to that thing over the bridge mm-hmm. and sees him in this white way. And then, uh, yeah, it's like an intoxication for him, you know? And then that dysteria, the science is the thing that seems to like sober him up and bring him out. Like, it's just so weird that dysteria is the thing that saves him from this uh, weird kind of illusion that he's in. Mm-hmm. She's definitely, I think he stays very unwell. Yeah, and and of course there is something unwell in science at this time too, right? The this whole idea of a race as being like something that you something can be mongrelized, right? Every, you yeah. know, like right now everybody's suffering suffering from Russia gateism. <laughs> the response to everything is, "Oh, Putin made you say that." <laughs> how many rubles did you get paid? Like, what? <laughs> That's not how things work. But more importantly, like back then, everybody was like, "No, race is, is a thing. It's science." We we just Paul, we just did, and Marissa, we just did a a book. Uh, that basically says, here's Nazism in 1919, right? Yes. Uh, the, all the racial theories and uh, breeding programs and all that fucking insane shit. That was to- that was exactly. It was this in the water. Year. Yeah. It was in the water, and everybody was drinking the Kool Aid. <laughs> right. So it's almost like Francis Stevens. If if you if you publish this story in your magazine today, you might get in trouble for having all that racist. Anti gypsy talk, right? Oh yeah, but well, I, I, actually, I should I should point out to our listeners that the that word is something that is offensive to people the Romani, and I and if I use it in this podcast, I apologize because some people do find that very offensive to actually even say the word because and, and any derivatives of the same. I mean, growing up, I I used that as a as a verb to gyp someone, and I didn't realize until relatively recently that that's really actually offensive. So. Yeah, hey, it's it's definitely possible to be offended by such words. Um, here, I don't think her concern is you know rehabilitating anybody. I think it's you know she. I don't. I don't think that she sympathizes with his. That is Francis Stevens. I don't think she sympathizes with his uh, gypsy anti-gypsy hatred. I think mm-hmm. that that's um, probably just used. As a, I mean, there is a romance to the gypsies. There's a love-hate relationship with the gypsies in the same way that there is with the going natives in India or um, in North America, sort of thing, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very different relationship than, say, in Europe, where they they have a longer, longer sojourn there, and the relations are are. uh, a lot more pointed. After all, I mean, that was one of the groups that Hitler rounded up. In addition to mm-hmm. Jews, homosexuals, he 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 rounded up the Roma, the Romani. So yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's interesting that there's the travelers too, which she, I I don't know how um you know the there's sort of the um uh, Irish version. Have you, you mm-hmm. anybody seen the movie Traveler? 
I've heard uh, of them, but I Bill Paxton. Yeah. So um, I think there's another movie or a TV show that's based on the idea. They're basically they're white gypsies um, in the sense that they're um, transient or uh, not settled. Nomadic, I guess, is the way of putting it. Yeah. And uh, they get a bad reputation um, as con men or what, what have you. Um, and are, as happens in this story, driven out of town, right? Now, um, I, think, I think we have to read at least one way of the story as being, like, we've got the black servant, we've got the, the white, white artist community, the airy-fairy artist community, <laughs> um, we've got the, uh, the scientist, and then the sheriff shows up with the posse, right, and drives the gypsies out of town. Um, and when the, the dog bites the sheriff... Uh, they shotgun the dog, but th- we're told the gypsies pull out their knives and then are driven away. And uh, after a couple of days, flee the area, right? Um, which, which is what I guess allows, um, and the fact that, like, the, I think there's timing issues going on here. And a mis- if Mr. Jim Moon was here, I would ask him about the timing of, of the dates because. There, isn't there something about uh, Midsummer's Night's Eve here? With the dates, it starts on July third, and then it ends when in August. Um, it ends August the thirtieth. Right, July. August the thirtieth is the last date we're given. Yeah, so it. When he first arrived there, it's not yet midsummer, right? Um, and I, because it also, I, I, I might have worked this out before um, when I read this the first time. Um, because we get the dates of the week, it's Monday, July 3rd, right? You can figure out the year and exactly what, you know, if this was set in 1919 or what, what have you. You could figure out exactly if it was um, uh, midsummer's eve. And he goes out on a night for a night walk, too, right? He's up too late, can't sleep because he hasn't. He thinks he he hasn't exercised enough. I um I think that's a misreading. I think I read it that way as well, and then I realized he actually can't sleep and he works all night, and then he goes for a morning walk. Ah, okay. Hmm. But but he is up all night that night. Mm-hmm. So then he's walking around in the morning all tired. Mm-hmm. It works all night on his instead of looking. Uh, through telescopes, he's he's looking through microscopes. Yep. Yeah. There's another story. This this reminded me of. I, I'm trying to remember the author and and the um, uh, the year it was published. Um, maybe somebody can help me out. There was an author from uh, before Ambrose Bierce, after after um, what's his name. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote science fiction in the United States, and he's from Ireland. You guys remember what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. No. What, ki- what kind of science fiction? Um, he wrote... Uh, hmm. I'll try and dig him up, but uh, there's another one that was published in Amazing, and he wrote, uh, whoever wrote those ones, I think it was called Pygmalion Spectacles, is the name of the story. 
And if that's the one, maybe it's not the right one. Pygmalion that, that's, Spectacles. That's, that's, that's Stanley. Pygmalion Spectacles is Weinbell. Is that okay, what you're yeah. thinking of? Yeah, that might, that's probably not the story I'm thinking of. Um, but, yeah, Stanley Weinbaum story. I think that's a VR story. Which is uh, we, well, yeah, we yeah, yeah, it's just like Marissa to read. Yeah, what is what is reality sort of thing and be mm-hmm. virtual reality? Yeah. Mm. Um, and there's some beautiful art, I believe, in the uh, let's see, Pygmalion. I'm spelling Pygmalion wrong. Uh, okay, so first publication, Wonder Stories, June 1935, and yeah, okay, so. I'll send this to the group to look at. Um, it's basically a guy puts on a mask and he discovers a world in which um, he finds a beautiful elven girl and falls in love with her. her in the picture here, it says her name is Galatea. Um, that Fred, who's Galatea or Paul? Yeah, that, that's that's from the big sto- story. That's the statue that he carves and. Which prays Aphrodite to bring her to life, and Aphrodite says sure, and he names the the, the transformed statue Galatea. Mm. And right, so that's the one that it's the there's a king in yellow story that's the opposite of that, right? Where the artist uh, makes a liquid that turns um, his models into statues, mm-hmm. right? He he gets like a rose and he drops it in this bath, and then it turns to a stone, and then pulls it out and now he's got a the most beautiful sculpture of a of a rose right it's like how did you do that and then his girlfriend falls in (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) his artist girlfriend model right um yeah if if you all know the king in yellow uh, there was somebody was tweeting about um how you know you've fallen into a poe story or a lovecraft story and there was one for um robert w chambers (laughs) and he said um, how do you know you're lost in a Robert W. Chambers? There's artists everywhere. You're in Paris, maybe. There's lots of artists. They're all doing art. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's true. There's there's now a role playing game called the Yellow King role playing game, and it's set in four different time zones. And the first one is Belle Epique, Paris, and you're expected that most of you are artists or are connected to artists in in that world. And so mm-hmm. you sort of realize that the King in Yellow has plans for the world. Uh, so, uh, if Marissa, if you th- look at the third one I sent you, that's um, Stanley G. Weinbaum's uh, Pygmalion Spectacles. Everybody can look, but Marissa will want to look, especially because it has a Virgil Finlay illustration of the same story. And uh, cool. out, out of one goggle is coming the dude, and out of the other goggle is coming the lady. And it says, he put on the glasses and fell in love with a dream. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's super awesome. Yeah, why why um, bombs are really underrated? I writer. want to read this. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of been forgotten because yeah, he was so early and yeah, uh, and I, I guess people would find a little bit some of it a little clunky or silly uh, now, but um, I I like what he did. Um, now this this is not the one. I, that, I, I mean, he wrote a. He wrote a Martian Odyssey, after all. We didn't do that on this podcast, did we? No, um, I, I keep thinking about how to do that one, because it's so simple. I've, I've heard it a few times and read it a few times. Yeah, uh, I'd be game for that, because it's, it is one of those Aha, uh-huh. I found the name of the guy I was thinking of. 
Who you His name was Fitz James O'Brien. Anybody oh, heard of this dude? No. Nope. No. No. Okay. Fitz James O'Brien, uh, born 1826, died 1862. Irish American Civil War soldier, writer, poet, often cited as an early writer of science fiction. Huh. And um, the story I'm thinking of is an 1858 story entitled The Diamond Lens. Now, what's so cool about this story, it's got super racism in it. <laughs> That's not the cool part. Um, <laughs> the cool part is, oh, here, I got it in the Atlantic, 1858. There you go, right from the original. Is uh, this crazy scientist um, decides that he's making the best telescope ever, or not telescope, microscope ever. Um, and so he goes to buy a uh diamond from a Jew who of course is making jewelry, etc. Right. Um and he I believe he murders the the uh Jewish uh diamond owner and then puts the lens of this diamond into his microscope so that he can see the world uh, uh you know of nature better. Um but the weird part is from my memory of it is that he finds a world of a microscopic version of like basically a forest inside a drop of water with all the, you know, floating around things. And there's a little tiny lady in there and the little tiny lady he falls in love with. So it's kind of in the <laughs> same way. Do. Yeah. As one does. <laughs> I mean, if you think of what happens in, in uh, our story, he, the only thing that can snap him out of this, uh, trap that he's in is science uh, yes exactly a tiny little oh it's actually a mic macroscopic um i i, I try i think i tried looking it up whether this that what was the name of that uh it has a giant cell gigantic something gigantic right now i i think i tried looking it up and i think it was probably real yeah, um, I, I mean, there there are microorganisms that are just visible to the naked eye like that. Right, so. and that's and that's pretty interesting, right? That he's he's gazing into this water where there's goldfish, right? And he's distracted by uh, the only thing that can pull him out of it, right? Which is his love for the microscopic world. And he even describes, um, uh, if I can find it in the story... When he talks about the what the painter sees, um, he sees things different, right? He says everything is big. He sees things sort of as generalities or something like that on the surface um, uh, because he's so used to seeing things through details in a lens. Mm -hmm. Anybody know where, where that part of the story is? Talks about his microscopic uh, writing, his microscopic this and that. Oh, there's you know, a. It's when he's talking to the painter, uh, and he walks away from that, and he he it's in, it's got to be in his journal. Let's see if I can dig it up. Hmm. Are you uh, due to much microscopy. Again. Um, due to much microscopic work, I'm inclined to see only clumsiness, largeness, in what other That's people it. characterize as go. beauty. Right. Clumsiness, largeness, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas when he sees the, uh, 
even the, when the elf trap is turned into a, it's beautiful, right? It's silver. I didn't know you could work. And, and the, uh, the um, stone, or not the stone, the uh, anvil that they're working on is as inlays, right? It's, it's, I pictured it as very much like um, Tolkien elves, even though this is way before Tolkien elves, right? Um, and it, they, there are all these frills and, I don't know, paisley styles uh, uh, added to everything they do. They're craftsmen, right? Or craft selves. Almost as if uh, the, the blending of craft and art yeah. so that I mean, every every useful thing is going to be ornamented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the arts and crafts movement and William Morris and all that, right? Yeah, this is a couple of years before Dunsany and the King of Elf and Starter, so it's again, something in the air at the time. Definitely. And it's a, it's a reaction against science in the same way that the romantics aren't like out there classifying uh you know, with microscopes and, and, and they don't take um, butterfly nets and pin the butterfly to the, to the board, right? They're out there writing poems about those butterflies, right? And that it's sort of an, it's a, a reaction against uh, what's, what scientists do in the forest, right? They just go and appreciate the forest, which is, it's kind of, um, I think it's a false. Dichotomy. Uh, yeah, it's a false. Re- you know, you, you don't have to choose one. Yeah, you can be a, mm-hmm. you can love science and love poetry. They can go together, in my you, view. You love science and love art, absolutely. Yeah, um, I thought of it in terms of um, in terms of uh, William Blake poem. Um, Which one? We, uh, well, there are several, but um, because he talks about um, double vision, and there's. Uh, auguries of innocence to see a mm. world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower mm. hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour and at the end um i think it's when wharton is beginning to fall into the trap um he says there are legends you know of strange people either more or less than human who appear as gypsies but are not the real gypsies that possess queer powers their outer appearance is rough and vile but behind that as a veil they live a wonderful hidden life of their own and and so um uh theron uh he learns uh double vision mm-hmm. um Whereas Blake says you can go up to to fourfold vision, but he learns double vision. That's really good, anyhow. And he can see the the elves um, sort of inside the gypsies. And then there's a sort of a hint that maybe um, uh, that's something he developed um, in germ, to to say it that way, in his studies of uh, uh, science, because when he sees the uh, Dysterius uh, Gigaticus, mm-hmm. for him it's a whole world, and there um, uh, Elva is blind. She says, oh, you all talk about love, right? and uh, uh, you just got a silly uh, uh, microbe, and you get all excited. So um, I think there's this notion of, of, of learning... Um, Double vision, twofold and, vision, and, and th- 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 that probably applies to them both being monsters that want to eat him, and also liberators that want to free him. Right? Uh, it's yes. not that they literally want to eat him, but the like I was thinking, why? 
what does he bring to the table? <laughs> what does he bring to the table? So obviously she's, she's pretty and she has a culture and a community that he appreciates, right? Um, in a way that he's never appreciated culture or community before. But all he brings, he's 37 years old and he's a professor. They want his money? No, because he's not going to work there anymore, right? They want his status? No. They want his handsomeness? Well, it said he was okay looking when he was young, right? But uh, I don't, like, traditionally what elves' problem was is that they they don't, they're, they're infertile and they need to bring outsiders in. Maybe that's what it is, right? But when he finally goes to them, he discards his body anyway, right? That's right. And yeah. so, whoa. So, so, so what is that? Hole. He's got a sorry. Yeah, what is that? What is he actually bringing to the table here? Um, 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 unless it's his charismatic attitude, or, or, mm. or, 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 or if you're immortal, or, or think about this: if you're immortal, near immortal elves living in this community by yourselves, just. Day, day, over and over. What would what would actually be useful? Novelty. He brings novelty. I mean, the the novelty goes too mm-hmm. far, and then he it drags him out of the world again because he finds the bug. But until then, he's like he's somebody different to talk to. He's a new perspective. He's something fresh and different, and that's important for someone who's immortal to find something new to deal with for a change. And, and Here, here's to, another. I, I would say he has an elva-shaped hole in him. <laughs> and, and and um, because time is different for her, um, she can. Uh, she's already started grooming telepathically or whatever, um, Wharton, so she can go through um, uh, people in need of her. Unless she can multiply herself. Um, she can go through one after the other. They they all sort of are sort of um, soulless. They need a soul, and she's sort of the right sort of soul for them. And when they leave, uh, it's like he's lost his soul, and nothing is um, bearable anymore. They're just sort of animals. They're big, clumsy, hunking uh, brutes, and so he has to go back. But he was sort of like that anyhow. He was already an outsider, um, but he had no soul, and he needed one, and she was the soul, and she needed him to need her or something like that. Mm. It's, un- it's un- uh, undetermined, so I think it's left in a indeterminate state at the end. Um, well, was, uh, Fred had a take as well, I think. Uh, I was just thinking maybe they trapped him because he was trappable. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing, like even mm. while Terrence That's was describing what I just said. it. <laughs> yeah, but without but without Alva having this, um, I see it as more not Alva is doing something for the good of doing it, but I, I'm seeing her more as a Scientologist, really. Like <laughs> she's like seeing it's the vulnerabilities, yeah. and she's like, "Oh, here's like come to me." But I just, I guess they just want members of their community. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, I heard this story years and years and years ago on a, a very early attempt at a science fiction pulp magazine not not the one uh, uh podcast magazine not the one we're getting it from uh your one fred um there was an earlier podcast i don't know if any of you remember this called mech muse m-e-c-h-m-u-s-e i don't think i ever listened to it no no it's long it's almost virtually been scrubbed from the internet but one of their they they commissioned art for every story and had professional narrators and it was a it was a try before you buy and then pay, and then it 
didn't go very long and then it died because it was just too early, I think, in podcasting for, you know, there was no Patreon models or anything like that at the time. Um, there hasn't, uh, it's been covered a few times in audiobooks and stuff, but there hasn't been a ton and ton, ton of coverage on it. Francis Stevens is, uh, probably going to get a more revival than she's got. Um, I'm trying to get more audiobooks of her stuff made by putting this stuff out on, uh, the website, but, um, if there is, if I ever follow through and start my podcast, I've got her story unseen, unfeared ah, yes. on my list. Cool. Well, I want to. I want you to do that. Yeah, my theme is going to be uh, looking at uh, spiritual themes in. Uh, That'll be cool. In uh, speculative fiction. That'll be cool. Um, there is a, a really good website, a blog. Blogs are good. Um, they're just suppressed by Google now, but th- yeah. they're still good. Um, there's an old blog uh, post from uh, May third, twenty fifteen, on a website called Tellers of Weird Tales. And uh, the art, uh, uh, I was saying, artist, the author, uh, Terrence Hanley, um, is basically trying to disabuse people of the idea that she, uh, that Francis Stevens is a dark fantasist. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I read a bit of that. Did, uh, I'm going to read this um, and see what everybody's take is on it because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, the stories of Francis Stevens, the Elf Trap. In Citadel Fear, nineteen eighteen, and Unseen Unfeared, nineteen nineteen, Francis made Francis Stevens made what may have been her closest approach to what is now called dark fantasy. It's probably no mere coincidence that I don't I don't even know what dark fantasy is. No mere coincidence that both stories were published in nineteen eighteen as the Great War was coming to an end in and in early nineteen nineteen as peace was being made. The war was of course a and we get that right in the beginning of this story, right? Um it's it's uh, death dealing shells, right? Uh, in the first line, uh, the Great War is coming to an end. Uh, the war was, of course, a nightmare and a disaster. You could not have blamed a sensitive artist for reflecting horrors upon her world. But Stevens chose a different way: love over hate, goodness over corruption, light over darkness. There can be little doubt that Francis Stevens was not the creator of dark and dark was not the creator of dark fantasy. To say that, that she was seems to me a 21st century and very academic conceit. The elf trap is only further evidence that Francis Stevens was a teller of bright rather than dark tales. It was published in Argosy, July 5th, 1919, and reprinted in Fantastic Novels magazine for November 1949. It's a long, short story of 21 pages in The Nightmare and Other Tales of Dark Fantasy, 2004, but one of the simplest of Stephen's stories to date, and I, I think that that's true. The structure, which is pretty funny because it's not that simple, right? The structure of the story is somewhat complex, however. In reading her work, I've come to expect that. Built like a puzzle box or assembled like a set of nesting wooden dolls, it includes a double framing device and the voices of two narrators. Relativity was in the news in 1919. Analytic cubism was a leading movement in art. In no other... It's no wonder that others that stories told from multiple viewpoints would take make their way into modern literature. One of John DeSasso's blah 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 blah. I'm going to skip to uh, down a bit here. Anyway, as you read the Elf Trap, you wonder how the story will work itself out. Where lies reality, and how a man's death can make for a happy ending? I'm not sure it is a happy ending. <laughs> that ending is a mild surprise, and the story itself is a pleasant reading experience. I might add that it could have been. This is the weird line that threw me. It, I might add that it could have been written only by a woman. What? Wait, what? I, uh, I don't know about odd. that. 
The elf trap takes place mostly in the mountains of North Carolina, and I'm not sure about that either. Where the main character, Theron Tadamus, has gone for so much for some much needed rest. Francis Stevens had a way with proper nouns, and there seems to be a deeper meaning in the in the man's name. I, I agree with that. If there is, it remains hidden to me. Uh, I'll just give you my theory on that. Because uh, it's such a weird name, right? Uh, yes. His name is Theron Tadamus. So... I, I looked up Theron, and the best I could come up with is basically it's, it means tall. means hunter. There are a number of things. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It could, it could mean that. Um, and it makes me think of Therio, as a, even though there's not the eye. So it sort of makes you think of animal. So. It definitely makes you think of animal. And the second part of his name, Tadmus. That's driving me mad. What's your theory? Okay, so, uh, you know, tadpole, right? Um, ah. And the word, uh, the reason a tadpole is called a tadpole is because it has a tail. Um, and yeah. moose, M-U-S, uh, is where we get the word, uh, it means mouse, basically. It's, it's the genus for mice. Um, so my idea on his name is tall-tailed mouse. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense other than if you think uh, mousetrap. Right, exactly, the elf trap. Right, so I, I think she's playing with it. I, I think she's pointing us towards something, but I, I have no idea if that's right. Hunter mousetrap, uh, hunter mouse, mouse hunter. Uh, Are you all, saying he's both the hunter and the hunted then? Well, he's hunting something, but he doesn't trap anything, whereas I think the traps, like, like that. that's why... I, it says a happy ending. I don't think that that's a happy ending necessarily. I think it's it's hmm. an ambiguous ending at best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to keep reading this, though, because I want to talk about... Uh, Can I just say one thing yeah, about the, the, the name? Um, Tadimus, uh, it looks Latin, but hmm. I can't figure out anything. The only thing I get close to is Te Deum Laudamus from What's the Book that? of Common Prayer. We praise thee, O God. It's a, a thing of sort of absolute trust in, mm. in, in God, whatever happens. Well, he uh, has a trust in science, I guess. Well, he trusts her at the end and he dies, but does he die? Uh, Is that, did you say that's from uh, his surname? from Tademus. Yeah. It, so, cause he it looks like... Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, I wonder if there's significance with the fact that he loses that name when he's in her world as well. Mm. What, what, what is what's his name? name in her world? They only yeah. use the first names. Uh, oh yes, right, right. One name is enough. Maybe yeah. she, they're after him because he's tall. <laughs> 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 they need some tall gene, except they don't really need his body, do they? So they don't really need his genes. <laughs> Or, yep. or they've got mosquitoes that he can kill them with his science. Yep. I, yep. She informed <laughs> me that true. one good name was good enough for one good person. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, it's analytic. If you've got two names, you're sort of uh, doing a, a, right. a, you're doing science. a coordinate system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah binomial, uh, binomial nomenclature. Yeah. Now, I want to read a little bit more here because uh, this other you had something driving you mad about the story. I had something driving me mad about the story. Okay, so uh, if, there, if there is, it remains hidden to me. Nearby Tedemus' mountain cabin is 
an artist calling named Carcassonne. Another name that seems meaningful, maybe by association with the city Carcosa. I don't, I, I don't, I, I mean, I can't say no, but I, I don't think that that's no, what it that's... is. Um, which is from the King in Yellow, right? Uh, she, she, she was age 12 when that came out. Unlike the uh, most of Francis Stevens' other stories, Elf Trap is a simple fantasy. Uh, don't think it's simple, and not sure it's 100% fantasy, because it's mm-hmm. also science fiction engaging with fantasy, perhaps. Um, on the other hand, it involves a, a kind of dream vision or altered state of consciousness or reality, and so it keeps with a recurring theme in her work. And then, this is funny, the elf trap reminds me of Brigadoon, <laughs> that an ordinary man undergoes an extraordinary experience upon encountering a magical village and its magical people. The man, Tadamus, is a scientist and so, ration- so rationalist, uh, oh, sorry, rational, materialist, and a disengaged from the living among humanity, whom he finds ugly and repellent. That's definitely true. He has no appreciation for or understanding of art. He has never danced nor loved. Theron Tadamus doesn't know what Francis Stevens has in store for him. That's true. In The Elf Trap, uh, Tatumus travels beyond the veil of hard reality into a deeper reality of the spirit. Uh, it is a love story in which love and art triumph over science and materialism. That's one way of reading it. That's love one way com- of reading it. <laughs> love comes in the form of Alva, a young woman who wears a scarf or a sky blue, of sky blue and adorns herself with a yellow honeysuckle. For a week... Tatumus escapes from his mundane life into her magic. He is called back by his love of science. He is a microbiologist studying the local protozoa. Elva responds, You're all alike, she cried. All. You, you talk of love, but your love is for gold. Right? Which is funny, because they're all their whole community is full of gold, right? Or freedom. <laughs> or some pitiful foolish yeah, as if it's the same for of her. life. You can call by a long name. And li- she yeah, enslaves they're... people, so she thinks freedom is silly. That's right. And leave for me. And leave me for. Before, yes. Adamus returns to his life of science. What he doesn't know is that Elva and her people have fashioned an elf trap for him. He can escape from it once, but he will be caught again. And so Theron Tadamus is saved from science and for love and art. Hardly the stuff of dark fantasy. <laughs> saved um, from science? Yeah. That's a that's a really weird way of reading that. Well, the other thing is, at the end, right, he brings his red notebook to class, his first lecture, and he's about to speak, and and it says he doesn't know what he's going to say, right? Maybe it's like, you all science students are fooling yourselves. There's no value in this work. The true value is looking at flowers with girls in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> and then instead he's, he looks out the window and sees uh, a blue sky, blue scarf, a uh, girl, um, and then promptly Be- has a heart attack. Him. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back, yeah, back to him and, and then he, he leaves his body. And So the thing that was driving me mad is Carcassonne, that's in France, right? It's a famous uh, tourist trap. <laughs> famous tourist trap that's that's a really that's a really slanted way of looking at is it paul <laughs> uh, well maybe maybe uh our resident fr- frenchy can uh, I, I, I mean i mean i've never been there okay i, I mean i've wanted to go there because the, the fortifications must be beautiful 
and there's a basilica the, there and all sorts of things. But the important part about the, the fortifications of this medieval town, right, is they were all rebuilt in the 19th century. Okay? <laughs> so it's a medieval town with a beautiful walled city. It's There's a uh, desktop, not desktop, tabletop role-playing game or tabletop game. Yes, a tabletop game called Carcassonne, yes. Right, which in which you build city walls and cities and mostly fortifications, right? So in the 19th century, they rebuilt those walls of Carcassonne that had been gone for 500 years, right? In order to create tourism. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yes, they, yes, they did. They it's did. a tourist trap, Paul. It's, it's a successful trap. It's a beautiful trap, but it's a tourist trap. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I get that. Traps but can be beautiful. They can, Absolutely. But the thing yeah, is, is, I'm just saying to Paul, like the fact that it's like beautiful and amazing, like it's still a trap. Yeah, <laughs> it can still be a trap. Not, it doesn't feel gaudy. Like uh, apparently, there's a new Florida-based uh, Star Wars Disney park. Yes. Oh yeah. And I watched a couple of videos of like what you do there, and it's like I'm never fucking going there. <laughs> <laughs> not for like, you, Jesse. Not put for the, you. put no. together your own robot. Put together your own lightsaber. It only costs forty dollars to make your own fucking customized lightsaber, where you put three <laughs> lightsaber bits together, and then it makes a sound oh. or whatever. Like, I'm not fucking doing that. That's the way. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it'd be cool to walk around there before you know it's open. Don't have to see all the tourists just to to see it from the I, ground point I'm of view. Or, doing that right now, actually. Delilah Dawson, yeah. the author, is doing that because she wrote a couple Star Wars novels, so that's what she's doing at the moment. She's walking around Star Wars. Okay. Or it would be great to go um, when everyone's forgotten about Star Wars, uh, go with Fred to take some photos of it falling into ruins. Yeah, there you go. Rural ruins. They're not so rural. Yeah. Yeah, whatever the... I'll, I'll go then for sure. Yeah. So uh, there's um, about a half hour from my house, there's a... Um, weird touristy area and they built a, a go-kart track there that fell apart and there was actually a little theme park where they built these absurd ugly dinosaur statues so you'll actually see a few of those photos mixed in with the ones that i took of barnes oh, these yeah. uh yeah tyrannosaurus rex and other dinosaurs one of them with the head has fallen off the, the, there's a there's a bunch of dinosaur statues in all places, Rapid City, South Dakota, because they decided to build. In, in addition to having statues of U.S. presidents downtown, they also have statues of dinosaurs. These these ugly concrete things. I kid you not. You can see them. They're, they're falling into ruin, but they're still there in South Dakota, in the western half of South Dakota. Yeah, as so, soon as uh, you say they're falling into ruin, then I'm in. Then I'm in. Yeah, uh, what's the city again? Rapid City. Yeah, it, I think it, I it, have it, seen pictures it, of those. Yeah, it's 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 north of Mount Rushmore. I wanted to uh, bring it bring it back to the um, the name Carcassonne. So uh, when I first read this story on paper, like just going through it with a student, I don't know, a couple of years ago, last year or something, um, I was like, well, let's look up this place. Maybe it's a real place, Carcassonne. So I looked up Carolina, right, and it's like, okay, Blue Ridge. Uh, and there are Blue Ridge Mountains in Carolina, in North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there is no Carcassonne in North Carolina. It's in Kentucky. But there is in Kentucky. And it is not a city. It is not a anything. But it's on the goddamn map. And 
I sent. I don't know if I sent it to everybody by Twitter. I sent uh, a direct message to a bunch of people, and it is about as rural ruiny as you can get. Right? Um, there's nothing there, and there's no explanation as why it's even called Carcassonne. And well, I'm like, is this a real place that she went to, yeah. or a friend of hers went to, and she said it there? And was it a true story? <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, maybe not that last part. Well, it's but, Jesse, uh, there's, does, a lot, does, there's a lot of places in the U.S., Jesse, that got named after places in Europe. That that was a that was a big thing in the 19th century. Let's let's name a town after someplace famous in Europe. There is, this isn't a, like you look on the map. It's fucking nothing. My does friend. it have it a is, railroad though, Jesse? It, there nothing. is a railroad. Yes. Yep, yeah. There you go. That's, that's in my county. There are. There's no there's no in station. My, it, There's a I Carcassonne look at a map post up office. County, I see places where there is a town with a name, and I have driven past those places a bunch of times, and it's typically two houses and a place in the road where the railroad crosses. And maybe what one time they were trying to make a town there, or maybe there was a, a train stop, maybe. But yeah, those there are the, the, America is filled with towns that somebody tried to get started and then they they failed so that's probably if you look at this and call this a town i'll be very impressed <laughs> well there's there's often no evidence you know uh that there attempts a town look yeah. at look i just sent the link to the group right and this is um there's a uh, it, there is a road and it's called carcassonne road but the google car didn't go down that road Oh yeah, there's a church. Uh, but you can look down it. There's a church. Uh, there's a post office. There's a bunch of trailers. There's an. Wait old a minute! Lake. You said there's a post office? Come on, well, man! It then says it counts. There's a post office. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, well, but I don't. know. What are you complaining like about? Carcassonne Community Center. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. That's all you need. That's all you need, Jesse. A church, you, a post if office. You, or, if you click on it, my friend, yeah. it is there's there's like a trampoline and a pool, <laughs> and it's it is. It, and, and 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 like if you zoom out, um, it is surrounded by like towns smaller than like the fact that it's it's calling it a, a community. It's not a community. It's 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 an area, but it, to call it an unincorporated village would be a massive overstatement. Yeah, it failed. That's all. Or did it? Or is it if you go there and you squint a little bit and you uh, take off your microscope yeah. glasses, <laughs> then, then maybe you see a real town. Yeah, once every hundred years, Carcassonne oh, emerges from oh, the mist. I, right. I, I, I was yeah, I was wondering if anyone was going to yeah <laughs> br- yeah bring bring in uh, what's we call it? Let's bring a dune. Bring a dune. Yeah, bring a dune. Yeah. If you're if you're in enough, you can see it. Right. What was that poem you quoted? The Blake. Uh, auguries of innocence. Ah, there's the guy who saw things differently. Yes, he saw workers in the field and saw angels with them. Yeah, when he was a child. And there's another thing: the, the colors. Are, there's a sort of thing. Um, she's with the blue sky. It makes me think that maybe there's something pagan about her. Um, is it a, a pagan sort of goddess? At the same time, Carcassonne was a um, 
famous because they had the Cathars there. They were exterminated. That's right. So, and they saw the world in, in, in dualistic terms. There was the, the two gods. There was the bad god who created our world with all the brutish, horrible people in it. And there was the good god um, that you had to you had to deny the body to get there. Mm. There's a, a town nearby called Kingsport. It is nowhere near any port. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is like this is if you zoom out it's like it's it's just it's in the it's near the blue ridge and that place ashville that's mentioned that he, they said he um he uh their theory is that he he just took the train into ashville and that's why he came back with only a couple of grass stains on his his shirt mm. or his his uh, clothes even though he's gone for a week um it's a real place so i think that she probably went on vacation there at some point or something. And, yeah. and it, the, the, there was a artist colony there and that something happened because I just wanted, I want it to be true. <laughs> you, you want to believe Jesse. I understand. I do. Yeah. I mean, but I've got a little evidence, Paul, there's a place called Carcassonne in the blue Ridge. It's near thousand sticks. Did you see that? I uh, the, all the names around there are just so evocative. <laughs> Ray's Ford, Mount Blackmore, and uh, yeah, I, I was I was zooming around the streets like for hours. I don't know, a couple days ago, and just like driving down the road with a Google car, and and it's like American flag, American flag, American flag, big truck, <laughs> American flag, American flag, uh, broken truck, Jeep, uh, ATV, big American flag. Uh, you're just zooming around these corners, and it's like, who lives here? Not I a think, lot. Uh, I it's mean, it's I, I, magic, I, right? The Google, I, we don't do it anymore, but when it first came out, well, I say we. Uh, I don't do it anymore very much, but when it first came out, Google Maps, where you could like drive down streets, you just pick some place at random in the world, and you just drive down the yeah. There was, a, there was it, also, also a game where you, like, it gave you an image from one of the Google cars around the world, and you had to guess where it was. And, wow. and you got points oh, based on how close you were. Yeah, that was really hard. Whew. Yeah, unless you got something easy like it, the sign was in some language. Yeah. Yeah. Then otherwise, it's like, where the heck is this again? Oh, yeah. The signage is in Spanish. That narrows it down. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Actually, Kingsport is pretty cool. Um, they've got like this. They've got a grid system on one side of one road, and then it, it it's a uh, spirals or. Oh, and then they've got an interstate passing through. It does, it's on a river, so at least it has some sort of logic to it. Yeah. But yeah, isn't that cool? Like you can find some small town, like where Fred lives, <laughs> and just look it up on Wikipedia, and it has a whole bunch of facts that are mostly wrong, but sort of give you the gist of the neighborhood. It's like the, we have magical powers that our, you know, our parents didn't have. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. And just like the fact that, like, if you're reading a magazine in 1919, the fact that there is a town in, in, uh, well, not a town, a colony, uh, art, artist colony in um, Kentucky on the border of the Carolinas, um, there's no way to check that. <laughs> right? Mm, I mean, they yeah, have books and stuff, but yeah, it's a library, to check. yeah. But yeah, even so, like, 
I can't imagine that that would show up on a, a map because it's not yeah. a town. It's like yeah. a road. In the pre-internet age, I was researching an obscure West Virginian author, and I called up the li- like the basically the state library in the capital of mm-hmm. West Virginia, and I'm talking to this librarian, and he says, "Oh, I've never heard of that woman." <laughs> so it's like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I um, it. I basically I had to wait for the internet to come along to to find out more information about her. And and then once it's once it's out there, right? It's e- even if it gets lost and suppressed by Google, um, mostly we still have it on. If you if you know the address, if you know the magic word, you can find it on the Wayback Machine, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 amazing the powers that we have to. And and that's how I got this story. Somebody scanned Fantastic Novels magazine, right? And I saw that illustration by Virgil Finlay. Damn, I heard Francis Stevens is interesting. Let me read this. Maybe it, it might might have been the first I read of hers. Might might have been the second. Um, did you? Did I think you, Paul? Uh, Paul Fred, I think you did uh, another story by her on um, pro, 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 protecting Project Pulp called um friend island yes that's an interesting i love that one. story and there's a interesting um gender theme uh because it's all women right that's right it's set but in i've forgotten most of it. i i got it i did a show on it and it's really good oh you guys got to check it out so uh well the story not my show i'll just explain what happens but basically there's a uh there's uh a reporter and he's a man, which is unusual because most reporters are women because women control the world. It's a matriarchy um, because it's set in the future and women are naturally better at everything than men. So the fact that he's a man working in a woman's world, it's tough. But he's assigned to go uh, get some color for the newspaper. And he goes down to the the seaside, um, uh, you know, the grim and gritty seaside uh, tea house. <laughs> Um, where he meets an old sailoress who uh, has, you know, sworn uh, to travel all the seven seas, and she's probably covered in tattoos, um, and she's a hard-drinking tea lady, um, <laughs> <laughs> an old salt, if you were, and she tells the story of when she was a young sea woman, um, uh, and uh, the only ships you would see out there on the ocean was when... Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the sailing ships were the only ships on the ocean were either trading ships like the one she was on or the peace ships, <laughs> which were out there making sure the seas were safe for everybody because women run the world. And, uh, and then she gets shipwrecked, uh, with a man on an island. Um, and the island is female <laughs> and, uh, Oh, the, the island has, yes. Has like is aware. That's right, and has a gender. Yes, yes. The island is female, and um, whenever the man starts pawing the woman, um, the island like starts erupting volcanic stuff and trying to kill. Wow! (laughs) Mother Nature is angry. It's 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 super funny, um, and funny on purpose. Francis Stevens had a really good sense of humor. Um, It wasn't like. (laughs) <laughs> like I think she's even playing with the idea that you know 
a lot of people say, we need a woman president. I don't care what her policies are. The important part is she's female because females are better. It's like, no, Margaret Thatcher was not a better prime minister than somebody else because she was female. She was the worst prime minister, not because she was female. She's just a bad prime minister, right? Now, some people might argue she wasn't that bad. Uh, yeah, some people good. would have a different opinion. but uh, she, she wasn't not- that good. And and the fact that she's female wasn't the important part about Margaret Thatcher. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton wouldn't be a good president because she's female. And, uh, you know, Jill Stein wouldn't be a good president because she's female. Policies matter. You know, intentions and um, that sort of thing matter. But she's playing with the idea that um, it's, I think, that it's only one way or the other. So when this, uh, the teller of weird tales dude um, says this story could only have been written by a woman. I don't think so. I don't see why yeah, that. I don't even know it. what he's getting at. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what is he basing that on? The fact that it's a woman who lures the man, which doesn't make sense because, hello, Keats. Yeah. It's like, it's I like, feel like someone could just as easily say this could only have been written by a man and everyone would be like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, like, yeah. That's I mean, much more arguable. Yeah, because there's yeah. male gays. There's male. You could argue there's male gazing here. It's a male yeah. fantasy. He goes to get to. If you read it as a subversive ending, though, right? That she's the she's the femme fatale, right? The original, uh, indic- uh, the uh, original La Belle Dame Sans Merci is a uh, femme fatale story, right? Mm-hmm. That great movie from the '80s, The Black Widow. You know that uh, if you all haven't seen it, you should oh, watch oh, oh, it. Oh, I've seen The Black Widow. Yeah. Uh, Deborah Winger and uh, somebody else. Um, and uh, one's an FBI agent. And the other one is a lady who keeps killing her husband for her uh, killing husbands for money. Right. Right, And they have a very interesting dynamic together. Yeah. It's not Thelma and Louise exactly, but it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's more like bound. Have you seen the movie bound? Yeah. I saw it years ago. I should rewatch that. You should. That's an interesting movie. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, it's interesting. I thought thought of that connection, um, but anyway, in any case, I, I think you could very much make the case that um, that reading Friend Island uh, and reading it as read, written by a man, it's like uh, mocking the women's rights or women's suffrage, right? But uh, mm-hmm. I think that'd be a stretch. I think it's easier to see it as written by a woman. Um, it just makes more sense. Whereas this one, I I think it could have been written by a whole. It could have been written by Lovecraft. It would be slightly different. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily female in that respect. Unless yeah. you, the ending is very like you would have fainted a few more times. <laughs> yes, there would be a lot. Of fainting, <laughs> for sure, and the <laughs> yeah. adjectives would have been a, a lot less about uh, yellow and a lot more about fetid. <laughs> Squal- squalmus. Yeah. Almost Squal- squalid. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's not enough degeneration, right? He would have yeah. to go into But it, it does yeah. have that place, that love of place and appreciation of place, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of this story. I think it's it's it, it's very subtle, like it, it's entertaining. But the more I read it, the more I think, oh, it's it's so well put together. It, what, what, Me too. What, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I um, I started listening on the audio and then started rereading it and just being like, man, this story is cool. And all that nesting, not just of the 
narrators, but of the realities as well. Mm. Like it's, it it's doesn't doing tell so you, much and really yeah no. Tell you this is what happened, right? It says, well, we have this gloss on it, and we have that gloss on it, and and I think I think it's like the, the there's something artificial about the that uh, you know the outer narrator and the but it doesn't matter because it's it works despite like like I was thinking well wh- why do we need these characters right the outer there's the outer outer narrator then there's the the uh, assistant Wharton uh, which uh, I don't know is Edith Wharton active is is that mean anything. I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you suppose this uh, fad of putting everything into a framing story was to make it seem more journalistic and therefore give it verisimilitude or something? So I I, I love framing uh, stuff. I think it, like, that's my favorite Poe story. It's hard to pick a favorite Poe story. It might be the Oval Portrait, which is, uh, it looks, I mean, it's, it's in the story title, right? Framing device. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But the thing is, is if you look at the actual length of the story, about 60% of it is framing <laughs> and it's all front framed. So at the end, there is no back frame. Like I read, mm. the, uh, there's this guy and he's read and in the original publication, it was even longer. There's this guy, he's he's wounded, doesn't explain how. I think he was attacked by bandits in the original. Uh he his servant, Pedro, takes him into a into an abandoned castle that has been recently abandoned. Like the 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 candles are still smoking and the food on the table is still warm, right? Yeah. Recently abandoned. They go upstairs and find a turreted room in which is decorated all these armorial uh trophies and paintings of faces portraits and then on the pillow beside his head uh is a book which he opens up his his servant follows pedro falls asleep and then he reads the he turns to the page with one particular portrait captures his his eyes in this you know women making women making them fall in love right he's falling in love with this portrait he stares at it for hours and then he finds in the book the story and then he reads that story and that's the end of the story right yeah. There's no outer frame. Like, what happened to our narrator? Did he? Uh... <laughs> it doesn't matter. It was all set up, right? So framing, I think, is it's so important. And if you read, like, um, what's that? Uh, great, great novel by the guy who thought ghost stories and science fiction were stupid. Um, I think <laughs> it's the first. Uh, Might have been the first read along I ever did on this podcast. Um, it was H.G. Wells versus, what's his name? He's the American who moved to England and became the king of the literary scene. Ha- William Hope Hodgson? No, no, no. He was American. He moved to England and oh. became like the number one popular writer. What the hell's his name? Washington Square, is that him? Oh, right. Henry James? Henry James, oh, James. right. Okay. So Henry James has a book. It, uh, I think it was best adapted as the movie The Others. Have you guys seen that movie? Oh, I love yes. that movie. I didn't realize that was no. adapted that way. Yes. It's not really. It's not really. It doesn't say adapted, but it's the same story, except it's told differently. It's told from a different point of view. But um, it's called The Turn of the Screw is the book I'm thinking of. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Don't. 
Uh, here I will drop out because I will otherwise launch into a half-hour <laughs> rant about how much I hate that story. But go ahead. That's all I'm going to say. The important part is it starts with a frame. They're at a dinner party, and yeah. somebody just finished telling a, story, a ghost story. And he says, well, I have another turn of the screw, which is kind of a weird way of saying it. But he's saying, I have, a, I have one that tells the same It's a ghost story. But then it's novel length, so they're all sitting around listening to to this story for an, for for what four hours at a dinner table? I don't think so. Six hours? That's kind of um, so. Framing, I think, is super important for a certain period of time and stuff, and I think it's really cool. Um, but here, it's so many frames, and yet the the it, I, I would have taken it just as journals as well. You know, like uh, the way H.P. Lovecraft opens yeah, the story. Yeah, yeah, I would think, yeah, Lovecraft do it that way. He just like, I, my name yeah. is uh, Jervis Dudley. <laughs> There's very little framing story going on in fiction today. And the reason I think would be the strong emphasis, the advice that writers are given to start with the action. And so... Uh, Framing seems like a lot of throat clearing that is just going to bore the modern reader, unfortunately. And, and oh. like a, a less emphasis on who's telling the story and why they're telling the story rather than just having, I mean, it's also also the tendency towards third-person limited and first-person non-omniscient and those being the mm-hmm. dominant mm-hmm. modes. It's like, okay, right. And you just wonder with that. You don't need the frame in that case. Yeah, it's also that people are so used to reading fantasy and science fiction now that they don't need that. They can just submerse into the world straight away without that like framing device to be like, imagine this is true. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we've also we've also we just have to look at the Avengers or Harry Potter. To, yeah, you can yeah. go. We've been trained. Oh well, yeah. but it's so good. Like you guys yeah. have house on the borderland. Yeah. yeah. I love that opening, right? There's two guys. They're on a fishing trip in Ireland. They follow a river down. The river disappears into a grotto, right? Um, it doesn't go out to sea. And then they keep al- keep going along it, and then it, it reappears. I think this is how it works. Or maybe it's the other way around. There's a house hanging over a grotto, right? And that in the house, they find a book. Then they read the book. And then, like, they realize, oh, that story took place here, and that this is like a dimension to an interdimensional portal, or the guy is fucking insane. <laughs> so uh, th- there's this guy, oh, geez, I should just ask um, the resident French guy who knows about philosophy. There's a <laughs> Gide, is that how you pronounce his, uh, the triangular desire guy? What's his name? Gire? Oh, Girard. Oh. How, 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 how do you spell his name? Uh, G-I-R- A-R-D. Okay. René Girard. Yeah, so René Girard. (laughs) Girard. 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 René Girard. Um, Do you know about his triangular desire theory or mimesis sort of thing? I don't know. Yes, and scapegoat. I really find, well, I found it really interesting. I don't know how uh, grounded in science it is, but I found it really interesting. Can you explain it? Um, can I explain it? Well, I don't like it, but it's sort of half good. It's incomplete. Tell, so, tell me the good part. Um, the idea is... Mimetic that that desire. That's the one I'm... Mimetic de- desire, yes. Um, 
uh, people don't desire anything of themselves. There's no natural desire. There's sort of biological needs, but you don't desire things as a human being without um, uh, taking on the object of desire of someone else. And um, if, as in the case of children learning from their parents, the difference between uh, the two is really great, um, there's no problem. Um, there's no feeling of aggression or v not much. Um, but as the, the two people are closer and closer in terms of, of status or qualities, um, the, the desire um, uh, is coupled with the desire to win out over the other and, and to, to eliminate or to um, exterminate the other. So aggression is, is tied in with the, the met metic part of desire. And then the society as a whole, there's mimetic desire going on all, all the time and builds up to a crescendo. And to avoid society uh, blowing apart, um, you take a, a scapegoat and project all the, the bad um, uh, feelings onto that person <laughs> and you, you, you kill him or her. And right. then that sort of is um, a discharge of All energy. the problems in the United States started when... Trump was elected, right? Well, his his um, advisor was Peter Thiel, and he um, right. he read he read uh, Rene Girard. And, um, yes, he's one of his gurus. Yeah, I'm not a Thiel fan, but um, the important part I think you're leaving out about mimetic desire, and my understanding of it, is that it's it's about advertising, right? And I see it and in Facebook. I, I, I I don't do Facebook, but that makes yeah. sense. I I see I see why it would be there, but I see it at like. Now, when I watch advertising, I can't but see it as like, oh, this is how they're manipulating me. It's so obvious, right? So sometimes uh, I, I used to write about advertising, like whenever in class, an essay, uh, essay, you know, they'd make you write an essay on whatever topic. I'd usually write about advertising because it bothered me. <laughs> and so I thought a lot about it. But when I heard Rene Girard's... Uh, theory of mimetic desire i'm like oh my god they use it all day long that's all they do so you, you you have like a character on screen enjoying an ice cream cone and another person looks at that person and says oh that looks good now that's mimetic desire right there's you the viewer watching somebody enjoying an ice cream cone and then there's another person enjoying that ice watching someone else and basically it's like oh i want to be like them <laughs> as opposed to just showing you the the ice cream that's right just like a bowl of ice cream sitting there right right and 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 the thing is is the difference if you're sometimes they have like a bmw the ultimate driving machine right and you see a car and it spins around the track or goes through the forest and you you project yourself into the vehicle right and usually they black out the windows or something right mm -hmm. you're projecting yourself into the into the vehicle and you say this is the lifestyle i could be living i i could be driving through the winding forests of Kentucky in my brand new ultimate driving machine. <laughs> or you show a guy getting into the car with a big smile on his face or getting out of the car wearing a, a fancy suit or you whatever Hollywood actor, you know, uh, wearing a fancy whatever it is you're trying to watch or whatever it is you're trying to sell. And that relationship between the person in the advertisement, the actor... Right. And their appreciation of the object of desire and you, that's the triangular, triangular relationship. So when we're, we're reading this story, 
we sympathize with our characters, but we keep changing sympathies, right? The, the, there's the first narrator, who is uh, Frances Stevens, perhaps. Um, she's saying, I got a story to tell. Um, I heard it from this dude. Okay. And then he had a story to tell that he read uh, and, and experienced himself. And then he tells it to another guy, right, who is like, I don't know about this story. <laughs> right? That uh, lampshading por- portion of the story where it becomes a meta story. And then there's us. And we're like, who, 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 who are we uh, sympathizing with here, right? And then there's Elva, and we're like, what, what's going on there? So uh, I think that complication, the number of times you, you change who you're, I guess the word is sympathizing I'm, I'm using, but maybe that's not the right, the, the, who we're perspectivizing through, right? Um, through, yeah. Yeah, and, and the fact that there isn't a fact about the matter, I think it makes it... Um, it just makes it cooler and cooler because it's more, yeah, which is weird, right? Because it should be each person's version of the events should be making it less reliable, but somehow right, when you're, effect, right? yeah, but somehow when you're reading it, it feels more real. The fact that these people are telling you what they heard. Yeah. And no, many of the facts line up, right? The dog. Um, yeah. It's three visions of the dog, right? There's the, the, curse, yeah, the, the beautiful bell, uh, purebred and then uh the mucky mess of the dead corpse of the dog yeah that's right so you don't know what kind of dog it was or whether the bell was silver or rusted but you know there was definitely a dog mm-hmm. because it's in all of the different perspectives and then then there's the three uh communities right there's yeah. the gypsies and the uh carcassonians and then there's the elves it's very, very complex, and uh, I'm, I'm in favor of everybody trying to do more framing devices. Not bad writing, <laughs> just, just more framing devices. Because I, I love the technique. I love the effect that it has. Do you see a lot of that, Marissa? No, I don't. But I'm at, when you were talking about it, I was thinking about how all freaking popular, like, the Blair Witch film was, which used that. Like, I think there's still definitely a place for it, and people oh yeah. Yeah, and it was it was rare, right? I was I was talking about um, Scooby Doo yesterday. I maybe I uh, maybe I saw a tweet about it and how. Oh yeah, it was a really good tweet. I think um, maybe SF Signal um, sent uh, you know a tweet about some post somebody wrote about how Scooby Doo is the revival of the Gothic, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and then I was pointing out to somebody else that you know the modern Scooby Doo's they're still making Scooby Doo, right? Um, all the ghosts are real. Yeah, and, and that's stupid. And that's like an stupid. inversion of the whole point of what makes Scooby Doo so cool was that Scooby Doo's tapping into something very, very old. But when they're debunked, why? I to me that would not fit the category of gothic. Oh, that's the whole it, point of the gothic. Is it? Is the that gothic XPK? At, at oh, the there's that whole business that the gothic is like a Protestant critique of Catholicism. Yeah, I forgot. No, they're the two sorts. There's the Gothic, uh, like Castle of Otranto, and the Gothic uh, XPK, like um, uh, Anne Radcliffe's... Um, That's right. Uh, That's explicitly called out in the Oval Portrait, right? The monk, maybe. No. no that is monk it the is Otran- Castle, Castle of Otranto? Yeah. Um, no. Let me bring it up. Oval Portrait. 
Love the Orville portrait so much. You guys all read this story? The yes. Orville portrait yes. a long time ago. Yeah. I love the opening sentence. Here it is. Uh, it's long. It's a long one. It's a poey. Uh, the chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me in my desperately wounded condition to pass a night in the open air, was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned among the Apennines, not less in fact than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> right? So he's, he's saying, Gothic time! <laughs> yeah, but, but by not put it, not, um, uh, sealing it up with the the framing story at the end he's missing he's turning down the opportunity to burn the place down which is the ultimate gothic ending well yeah it's a short story story. (laughs) yeah and and the thing is we don't know we're we're left to finish the ending right yeah sure um and because it like why was this place abandoned like, did the guy finish writing that book like a minute before he, and he ran off into the woods screaming? <laughs> never, it's never explained, right? And I just love that. Mm-hmm. I was like, why is this even here? <laughs> it's almost like a non sequitur. <laughs> it's like, okay, here's the story. And then, well, oh, this story's, or, or to go the other way, um, uh, I, I, I don't know if you guys heard my amazing news, was I found out and posted up. That the Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges is yeah. public domain. Oh, yes. No, I did so, not see that. So cool. Um, in I believe in the Garden of Forking Paths, there's a bit that says um, there's a story inside of the Thousand and One Arabian Nights in which um, uh, Shahrazad starts reading a Thousand and One Arabian Nights. <laughs> So that it's it, it, not only is it a thousand and one nights, it's actually infinite, right? Yeah, there's a regression, yes. That infinite regression. So that it's like, and then you get, there's a book and it's on a, it's, it's spirally, or it's a, it's bound around so that the spine is on the inside and you can, there's no beginning and there's no end, right? There's no front cover, there's no back cover. Mm-hmm. So you just read it like, you pick it up anywhere and you can read it all the way around. Keep going, <laughs> never stop. That's like um, it's the ultimate framing device is you picking up the book, right? There's something going on there that I just love. The interaction is like where 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 the story starts. Why start in the action? Uh, well, because people give advice. I read a story once where it started with action and it was cool. <sighs> I want I want to. I read a story once where it started with a a framing device and it was cool. Why don't we change the trend? The, the thought is that readers are simply too impatient nowadays, well, and there's so too much competition. Are there these giant honking long books, this 600-page books. Yeah, but oh, there, there's, they have the options, and if if you don't hook them in the first paragraph, they're going to walk. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is the theory these days. If you don't hook them quickly, then they're going to go and go and play with their phones or play Candy Crush or watch a movie and not go back to your book. That's, that's the theory. I'm not saying necessarily that's true, but that's the perceit. That's the perception these days in publishing that if you don't yeah. get them right from the get go, you've lost them because there's just so much else out there to distract, mm-hmm. distract potential readers. Yeah. I feel like that that's just like one section of readers and there's a whole bunch of readers who love the slow build and have tons of patience. But for some yeah. reason that's just not in the, like the publishing consciousness right now is all about the, the hook, the fast read. The yeah, the publishers action. are enforcing that rule ruthlessly. Yeah, yeah. 
But it's anti-science fiction. Uh, the if you give me the facts without the interpret without the interpretations mm. is it's empiricism. And I, I remember Paul, you recommended a story, um, Inconstant Moon. Oh yes, mm, great yes. story. And well, I read that. And almost all the story, it's three quarters of the story, is just in the heads of the uh, the man and the woman. There mm-hmm. is some uh, disaster at the end, but they're just interpreting, interpreting, interpreting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and that's, you find that's... out whether they're right or not at the end, right? Right. Yeah, I'm I mean, sure that, that, all, it... that all builds up to that last line where they say, well, I wonder if our children are going to colonize Europe, Asia, and Africa. So, yeah. Yes. But it's all, interpre- it's all in the head. That could only have been. That's a line that not could only be written by man, but that's a line that only could be written by Larry Niven <laughs> or Jerry Purnell. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> to our traitors, to everything. <laughs> no, they're just they're just them. <laughs> they're well, just very. Well, well Larry, you still have Jerry is passed. Uh, yeah, Jerry. Uh, he died last year. Was it two years ago? Was, oh, okay, time time flies, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's fun. There, there are some like you definitely like you. You don't necessarily know at the beginning of that story that it's written by Larry Niven necessarily, but because it's a ro- it's got a romance sort of going on, right? Quasi romance, uh, yeah. Yeah, but then it hits super hard science fiction, right? In the sense that, like, oh, let's do the science on this. Let's do the calculations and all that. And then that ending line, yep, Larry Niven story. <laughs> yeah, Larry Niven story. <laughs> oh. And, and so for long-time listeners who don't know, the first podcast I ever was on with Jesse for of Audio was a Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell book, Football. So, was that fo- fo- Yeah, Football fo- was the first one you invited me to, yes. Football? Football, or, it's a novel, yes. It's an Invasion of the Earth story like H.G. Wells, uh, but with Larry Niven. So uh, the humans are a little more conquery than uh, and more tanky. <laughs> Oh no! I guess they were tanky yeah. in HG Wells. It's just, it's just like more like we can do it rather no, than. No, I'm, I'm just arguing over the name. It, the name is Footfall with two Fs. Footfall. Yeah, Footfall. Yeah, yeah I yeah. thought you were saying Football. No, no, no. no, no, no. Sorry, my yeah. apologies. <laughs> yeah, I misunderstood. The a- aliens are basically giant elephants, I guess. Right. And, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Humanoid elephants, basically. They're, they're kind, yeah. they're kind of like the Phantom Lawrence Shonen's novels, except much more conquery. Or the uh, the green trunked green uh, alien in the Conan story, the Tower of the Elephant. Oh yeah, <laughs> Yarg Sho- Yarg Kosha or something like that. It's a weird story and a weird and, tale. Uh, another <laughs> thing I read recently um, was uh, Waldo by um, uh, Heinlein. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I had I had read it for years, and that's the same thing. Um, the there's very little action. Um, except towards the end, and it's just pages and pages of what's going in, on inside uh, uh, Waldo's head, and it's incredibly gripping. Mm-hmm. So uh, this uh, formula of um, just give us the facts, give us the action, um, it's an uh, adulteration of, um, of literature and of so- science fiction uh, at, its, at its best. Mm. Well, there's probably thousands of stories that use this, these techniques to bad effect, right? The ones that I haven't picked out from 1919. In- info dump stuff. Or, you know, just, I don't know, like, just, like, why are we being told this? Like, yeah. here I think it does, it does a little, I mean, it feels a little clunky, but I think she needs it 
to get uh, the the full effect of the the frame, the frame, the frame, the infinite. It's almost like changing microscope um, uh, magnifications, right? And yes, then, like you know, powers of ten. Yeah, and there's I think there's even a line in in here where he says. Uh, he's adjusting the micrometer and everything is a blurry chaos and then you turn it just a fraction of a millimeter or probably inch in this case and uh, it becomes crystal clear right yeah kind of of like the opening to the outer limits where you have that blurry image and then it goes into crystal clarity Mm -hmm. with just a moment Mm -hmm. change yeah that's right I I do want to revisit that uh, story by um, a wine bomb, and I also want I I, I want to get more into um, that. Uh, I'm trying, blanking on his name again. The guy who uh, who was uh, died in what's his name? Uh, James Fitz Fitz James O'Brien. He wrote um, a story called The Wondersmith. Uh, How I overcame my gravity. Uh, and there's a story called What Was It, um, which is really cool. I've read that one a few times. Um, it's it's there's a couple people in a boarding house, and uh, what happens is um, it turns out that the boarding house is haunted um, by, like, there's somebody, some force running around the house and, like, poking people and being mean to people. Um, and they think it's haunted so they move to another place like the landlady moves the house and then and then the new place is haunted too and like what the fuck's going on right um so while they're out smoking opium in the backyard <laughs> they come up with a plan um and they trap the thing and it turns out it's an invisible creature like like it's a it's a physical being but it's invisible and then they get like uh plaster of Paris and they make it shape so they can see it and eventually uh, they try and feed it but eventually it dies and it's rotting but they can't see it and it's like it's so weird because it's a ghost story that turns into uh, like hard SF well the Orla while they're smoking yeah and while they're smoking opium right 1859 story and the, the diamond lens again the guy falls in love with a lady inside a drop of water this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com all right let's get uh, a little warm-up going i i watched uh, john carpenter's vampires last night it was on netflix um, who's seen this movie? I know Paul. You, you saw it years ago. It, 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 nope. Years years no. ago, and I, I met I met the act, one of the actresses from it because I went to a local horror convention. Yeah, there's not that many. Is was it Cheryl Lee? Yes. Oh, okay. She, yeah, because she has the only female role. That's yeah. Uh, that's Ruth Smith. I, I I can't imagine that film getting made today. No. Well, a lot of John Carpenter's right could be made today. So uh, it it would be heavily accused of misogyny, and rightfully so. But I think that's the, the, the characters are supposed to be misogynists. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was like uh, everybody's a bitch and a hooker. <laughs> well, they are hookers, but more importantly, they're bitches. And they like <laughs> he, like he punches her in the face after she bites him. 
because uh, she's turning into a vampire. Wow. But it's but it's also a love story. <laughs> yeah, 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 as I remember, it was a hot mess then. It's a hot mess now. It is a hot mess, but it's actually a good movie, even though it's not a great movie. It's it's definitely you know not the height of of his stuff, but he had a uh, it's a movie nobody ever talks about by Carpenter that's really good. Sounds like a dog's eating its lunch. <laughs> what is that sound? Sorry, that's me, but that's the last bite of nuts. Um, oh, nuts. Okay. Oh, nuts. <laughs> Trying to get it. It's like my mom's dog eating its kibble. Yeah, well, not so far off. Then he runs off into the other room and eats everybody else's kibble, too. <laughs> In fact, I've seen the film, but I saw it 20 years ago, so I forget a little. Yeah, it's like 1998. Um, it's based yes. on a novel by John Stakely, who wrote two novels. And... Uh, the main character of both novels has the same name, even though they're completely separate characters in separate universes, which is really strange. <laughs> His name's Jack Crow. And the other one is uh, a good name. science fiction. Yeah, it's a good name, but like they're basically the same personality type, too. And that, those are the only two novels the guy ever wrote. Um, but uh, it's the premise of Vampire, John Carpenter's Vampires, is that God is, a, is real. God is real, and more importantly, vampires are too. Um, and the Catholic Church is on, uh, funds mercenaries to kill, track down, and kill vampires. <laughs> and uh, in the movie, James Woods, who um, apparently has turned into a, a very um, big tri- Twitter troll. <laughs> um, yes, yes, he has. Is uh, is the main mercenary doing the job? The book I remember as being pretty good, um, uh, like better than the movie, but uh, the movie's not awful. That would be an interesting theme for a podcast is um, uh, the the role of the Catholic Church in horror movies and uh, uh, to to compare the movies where uh, the trappings of Catholicism are all they're really interested in, the holy water and the crucifixes and that, Mm. versus uh, places where... uh, the Catholic dogma is actually taken seriously or, or were they engaged or engaged with engaged, it? Yeah. yeah. Engaged with it. Yeah. So you mean like, uh, like, I don't know, human rights or something. No, I'm talking about, uh, like in the conjuring, uh, where, oh, I, I um, you know, the exorcist is, well, you know, it's based on the, the, uh, accounts of actual exorcists, from the Catholic Church, I'm also thinking of a novel uh, called uh, Jennifer the Damned. It's about a girl in a convent school who is a vampire, and she's uh, dreading her first communion because she thinks uh, receiving the blood of Christ is going to trigger her and uh, turn her, make you know, give her this insatiable appetite, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, there, there's some fun stuff with the the sacrament um, and blood, right? Uh-huh. Right. To be done there. And, uh, yeah. Um, it's funny um, how many homophobic jokes were in that movie, too. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's like the, the, there was some sort of, like, I don't know, in the early 80s, gay, gay jokes were, like, on the rise. And by 1998, it was like, we got to get them in here before we can't do them anymore. <laughs> 
Because uh, <laughs> there's like every time he stabs a vampire with a one of the guys stabs a vampire with a stake. He says, "Did you get wood? Was it ebony, mahogany?" It's like, oh what? my god, what is this about? <laughs> oh god! <laughs> and like, like you don't see that in earlier, um, earlier John Carpenter movies. Like, I don't remember a lot of uh, homophobic style jokes in, I don't know. Escape from New York or The Thing. Uh, or Prince of Darkness. Or, well, yeah. Prince of, well, Prince of Darkness does have a little bit of, homopho- little bit of yeah. homophobia because uh, one, one character says, I have a date with a beautiful trilatory, and the other guy says, what was his name? And the the, the, the other character is clearly unhappy with that joke. And it's clearly meant to be homophobic. It's like, right, right, but right. Yeah, but that was just a one-off, though. Hmm. Not, not as bad as apparently what Vampire sounds like. No, it, it it was it was kind of surprising. Um, not not bad as much as like, oh my god, really? Like, like I don't think you'd be highly offended. I think you would be like, seriously, guys, this is the level we're at. Like, you know, there's just sort of a level of immaturity there that was, I don't know. It was. It, I can see why it's not the best movie of of his his over but i i wanted to mention this movie that probably almost nobody saw uh john carpenter's very late career because i'm a big john carpenter fan um it's uh from the masters of horror he actually did uh, i think three for masters of horror or maybe just two but one of them's good um and the rest of them are terrible this one he did called pro-life which is um uh, i don't know abortion horror uh not so good <laughs> Uh, but he did one called Cigarette Burns. Have you guys seen this one? I have not no. seen that. You gotta see Cigarette Burns. It's amazing. Um, it's uh, it stars the actor who plays uh, Daryl from from The Walking Dead. You know, he's got the pink jacket and uh, the long stringy hair, and he doesn't say much. And all the girls think he's super hot. Now it sounds like somebody's going through a drawer. That's not me. <laughs> Fred's rearranging his house. <laughs> oh, I think maybe my hair brushed the microphone. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. My, uh, Your hair my, is made of boxes. My bouffant uh, hairdo is just huge. I, I put the microphone above my mouth rather than below. Yeah, no, I saw. It was, oh, wow. Uh, this I'm, I'm, I'm reading the description of cigarette burns. It sounds interesting. It's really good. It, it's really well done. So the premise, uh, what, what's it say there, Paul? Um, John Carpenter's installment of the Masters of Horror's Cable Anthology series because of the ominous underground mystique surrounding a notorious 1970s horror classic. Cigarette Burns tracks the search for said opus, Le Fin Absolute de Monde, by the owner of a repertory theater on behalf of the highly decadent millionaire collector. The film supposedly destroyed after it caused a riot at its only screen, causing viewers to turn into homicidal cannibalistic maniacs, which sounds a lot like In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, so the, the film... Is about the the movie is about a film that was so horrible that the only time it was ever screened, um, yeah. it it made this made everybody insane. So it's like well, a Lovecraftian film, right? King King in Yellow uh, thing yes. going up there too. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the main character is tracking it down, um, and he like gets little snippets of it, and he finds the weirdos who like basically it transforms the audience sort of thing. But the reason it's called Cigarette Burns is uh, you've seen it in those... Um, Grindhouse. Grindhouse films. Well, uh-huh. just any films. There's 
when a reel is about to be changed, a little cigarette burn would show up on the corner of the film for like, I don't know, a couple of seconds to indicate to the, uh, what the projectionist, that's the guy to switch reels or to start the next reel up. Right. And, uh, so it's like, what sounds painful. (laughs) I don't want to get cigarette burns, but, uh, it's, it's really well done because it's a Lovecraftian, um, film or yeah king and yellow style film king and yellow um it reminds me of a of a friend of mine's recent novella the the friend is john horner jacobs the novella is the sea dreams it's it is the sky it's about a it's about a about the notes of this of this expat from south america and that kind of drives the reader to go back to the country she came from and it's yeah it's kind of cosmic horror and very much in that same sort of king and yellow in the mouth of madness sort of tradition, I really, I really liked it because it's really in my, really in my jam space. I can have to look up cigarette burns because this sounds like exactly mm. what I like. It's really good, and it's 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 one of those scary movies you don't want to watch too late. And it's it's sort of his last hurrah before, uh, I don't know, giving up because he, he sort of gave up filmmaking, right? Yeah, I think he's so. still around. He's on Twitter, um, but he concentrates on doing music. I think the problem is is. He, he he's a bit uneven, right? He's a bit uneven, but more importantly, um, he doesn't do it the Hollywood way. And like, if if you gave him, uh, I don't know, Netflix money, he'd probably do really really well. Or there's a there's a channel called Shutter. I don't know much about it. Maybe it's maybe it's a service. Um, he'd probably do really really well. Uh, forgive my stupidity. Did are we still talking John Carpenter? Or did yeah, yeah. On to, really. Yeah. And then why don't I see cigarette burns showing up on IMDb? Uh, it's it's part it's it's a film, but it's part of a TV show called Masters of Horror. Oh, so it is a it is this episode here. Yeah, yes. two thousand two. Yeah, okay. I, I'm calling it a movie, but it's it's only an hour long. All right, but uh, because it's a standalone, it's it's a it's a film on it uh, on itself. Yeah, I get it. I get you now. And um, you guys know about. Um, I've got to find it so that I remember. Uh, just watch the, uh, the website. Just watch. Nope. No. Okay. So what's great is when you're looking for an obscure film, just watch will tell you everywhere you can watch it. Oh, that's legally. legally. Oh, that's oh, so if you're willing to pay, it'll it'll list those. If if there's any place where you can stream it free or with ads, it'll tell you that too. Ah, cool. So I've That's started really using helpful. that a lot. Yeah, there's cigarette burns shows up when you start typing in cigarette. Two thousand five. Yeah, that was um, la fin absolute du monde. What does that mean? The absolute end of the world. The yeah, the absolute end of the world. Uh huh. Which is kind of very odd. On brand for him to have his last work to be that mm-hmm. game like that. Well, it's not his last. He, there's another movie out called The Ward that uh, has very very low reviews, and uh, and he, he did I think at least one more. I know he did Pro Life. I think there was another one he did for Masters of Horror as well. Maybe it's just the two. Okay, um, and if you've got Apple TV, you can get cigarette burns from there. There Thanks you go. Just just watch. Yeah, and then. At the end of the month, there's like, yeah, a bunch of, oh, maybe it's Apple that's coming out, uh, Apple Channel, and like, it's going to be crazy, you know, there's the number of new streaming services with Disney and Jesus Christ, it's, 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 it's like too many. 
simplify your life and torrent everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have to be careful not to incentivize the uh, uh, thieves too they, much. Oh, they're not thieves. They're pirates. Make it. Make the distinction. Pirates. Okay. Sorry. Forgive um, me. By, by the way, uh, on listed on there, uh, what we do in the shadows. I haven't finished it yet, but the TV adaptation of the movie is excellent. Excellent. And stars Matt Berry, if you know who he is. Um, you don't know who Matt Berry is, I guess. No. <laughs> become, oh, no. awesome, Matt Berry. Um, yeah. he, did, he did a show <laughs> for, um, uh, I, I don't know, it was on Netflix, but it was a BBC or ITV or something called Toast of London, where he's an actor. Um, he was on IT Crowd as one of the bosses uh, years and years ago. But Matt Berry, his comedian, is just like, it's just so funny, but he plays a vampire on this show. Um, you guys know about that movie, right? What we do in the shadows? No, vaguely. Yes, it's a, a New Zealand vampires uh, mockumentary. You know, just hanging out with New do, Zealand vampires. Do they like yeah. a bunch of vampires just living in an apartment together or something? Yeah, and you know they they it's it, so it's done in the style of a. Uh, reality tv where they okay. turn to the camera and but uh there's they've got it so it's got all the tropes of vampire stuff but it's 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 just a comedy um mm-hmm. the movie's pretty low budget but the uh, tv show's pretty high budget and it's very entertaining it's a half half hour you know comedy drama but more importantly comedy with matt perry he is so funny that's got a he's, he's got absurdist sort of take on everything it just makes he's, he's just super funny uh all right um let's do a show shall we let's okay. let's step oh, yeah. into an elf trap mm. you're, you're spoiling it paul yep <laughs> oh, jesse 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 <laughs> it's called teasing paul <laughs> all right um so let's see how, how how we got this uh, this way. Uh, we got Jesse. Uh, we got uh, Marissa. No, no, it'd be Jesse, oh. Paul, Marissa, and then I guess Terrence. Terrence, right? Fred. Yeah. Wow, Terrence, you're not last anymore. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing. You're moving up the ranks. You just yes. have to wait for Marissa and Paul to die. I thought they were arranged. I thought it was a zombie podcast. Paul, Paul dies in Nepal so Terrence can move up in the rank. No. There you go. 